The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Good to see you all. What a lovely evening it is. I'm here in my lovely Brooklyn apartment. Uh, it's been amazing weather. Uh, it's the good part of September, not the confusing part, not the humid part, not the hard summer, not the cold fall. We're in that perfect medium. Great weather we're having here in New York City. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're here with us. I hope you had a good weekend. We're winding down the end of the weekend. Many of us have to go back to work on Monday, but you can spend the last parts of your weekend with me, or maybe you're listening to this on the way to work on Monday, or you're listening to this later, wherever you're listening to this. So glad to have you all here. So glad you're here. Hit that like button. Crush that like button. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notifications bell. We all like the notifications bell so that you get notifications. Is that how you're supposed to say it? Notifications bell. So you get notified next time we do these. Trying to do as many streams as I can these days, right? Because that's how our community stays connected. Um, So the way we do this, the way all of this is going to happen is I give my quick opening remarks. Um, Some nights are longer than others. Sometimes the opening remarks go on for an hour. Sometimes they're 20 minutes. Sometimes they're short. I give my opening remarks. Then from there, I do the roll call where I call you out. We find out who it is who's watching. I call you out as I see you, names and locations. And then after that, I answer your questions for the remainder of the show. And it's really your questions, your super chat questions that make the show happen. So if you have a good question to ask me, by all means, shoot me a super chat. I will be jotting them down in the notebook with my clicking, clicking pen. I've got plenty of unnamed water beverage. And that's how we roll. So I'm going to give my opening remarks, keep the super chats rolling in, and then I'll answer your questions, and then we are done. So there you go. Three-part show. Post this on Reddit. Post this on Facebook. Post this on Twitter. Post this on Lefty Poll. Post this on Bunker Chan. Post this on your Instagram. Post this on your Facebook. Put this in a Facebook group and say, oh my God, did you just hear what Caleb said? Ah!" Trick them, trick them. Go for it. Whatever you can, the more people here, the more fun that we have. That's how it works here. That's how it works. Um, So I'm just going to roll right into my opening remarks. Um, All right. Navalny. I'm going to roll right into my opening remarks. Just a few things. First things first, the Russian elections just happened. There appear, based on the exit polls, to be some substantial gains for the Communist Party. Use the collapse of Evergrande housing market. Um, use collapse. Uh, there, there appear, according to the exit polls, to have been substantial gains for the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, the CPRF. Um, so that is what the initial exit polls are showing. Uh, you can obviously tune into RT for the most up-to-date information and results. Um, I'm just telling you what I've seen so far. Um, I am not going to get into that too much on this stream because we are going to soon, 
uh, in the next week. Within the next week, we're going to be talking with Donald Quarter, uh, the RT reporter based in Moscow, who recently interviewed the chairman of the Communist Party, uh, Zhuganov. And he's been you know, following the Communist Party and their election results throughout all of this. So Donald Quarter is going to come on this YouTube channel and from Moscow, from the thick of it, tell us what is going on with the Russian Communist Party. It looks like they've doubled their representation in the parliament. Uh, the United Russia Party seems to still be the majority party, but the, the Communist Party, it, it looks like they're going to significantly increase their presence in the Russian parliament. And I don't want to get into that too much because Donald Quarter uh, is there. He's talking to them and he will be able to tell us uh, with in-depth knowledge of the Russian Constitution, in-depth knowledge and, and friendship with members of the Russian Communist Party. He'll be able to tell us exactly what is happening. So hold your horses with all of that. Um, you know, hold your horses with concerns about, about Russia and the Communist Party and the elections. We're going to hear it straight from Donald Quarter, um, and that will be good. It'll be good to have, you know, that we can defer to a, a source on that. Another thing I wanted to mention is that um, if you haven't already had a chance, uh, in Pennsylvania, in the city of Saxton, Pennsylvania, the small town or village of Saxton, Pennsylvania, uh, back in June, I gave uh, basically eight presentations, eight presentations called the Saxton Lectures. Um, and the first four Saxton Lectures are already on the internet. Uh, They're already on the internet. So you can, you can watch the first four. And it looks like uh, the fifth Saxton Lecture, part two, the first of the second part, is about to go up on the web. I'm editing it here, um, but it's in the process of being finished. And we really do want to have a campaign to support and promote the Saxton Lectures uh, because they are an introduction to Marxism in a clear, coherent way that nobody else seems to be doing. Uh, we are going to uh, have a campaign to promote them. I've already purchased the website, saxtonlectures.com. Uh, we are going to be coming up, um, you know, uh, we are going to be coming up. Um, I've already got one question on that, but I'm writing it down. Um, already we are going to be having, um, at this point, um, we're going to be having, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, some unique literature to promote the Saxon lectures. They're going to have their own website. Um, we're going to really make an effort to try and promote them. Perhaps there'll be even a companion volume that, that go, it has all the information from the lectures, but also a lot of background info in them as well. Uh, we're going to make the Saxton lectures really a thing. And if you want people to understand Marxism, just have them watch the Saxton lectures, right? It's a very in-depth, but very introductory and basic uh, introduction to Marxism. So uh, if you haven't already checked out, there is a, a playlist uh, of the Saxton lectures of the first four. Number five is on its way. Behind that is number six. Behind that is number seven. And then after that will be number eight. And after you watch all eight Saxton lectures, you will understand the city-building tendency of Marxism far, far better. Uh, so far, far, far better uh, than than so many differences. Oh, my differences with Marcy. All right. Um, so there you go. If you haven't watched the first four, if you want to help me promote the Saxton lectures, get the get the playlist of the Saxton lectures so far out. 
Pretty soon there's going to be a website um, and all kinds of complimentary material. The Saxon lectures were put together really to, uh, to kind of introduce people to our unique city building tendency, understanding of Marxism, the basic concepts, capitalism, imperialism, socialism, et cetera, uh, as well as our critique of the synthetic left. And the first four classes were just kind of an overview of our movement. The second four classes, however, are a critique of the synthetic left and explaining where the synthetic left came from and how the city building tendency is different than the synthetic left. And the second lectures, if you thought you enjoyed the first lectures and you learned something, the second lectures are really going to be a surprise. Uh, there's a lot of music in the second lectures. There's a lot of uh, a lot of audience discussion that goes very interesting places in the second part of the lectures. Um, you know, I'm editing the first one, and then there's three more after that. There's a lecture on Trotsky uh, in there that's coming up that I think folks will pretty much really enjoy. It won't be like any other takedown of Trotskyism that you've watched. Uh, there, there's talk of the Congress for Cultural Freedom and Project MK Ultra. Uh, there's, you know, talk of the Marquis de Sade and the French Revolution. Uh, there's talk of of all kinds of different stuff. You are going to enjoy. You're going to enjoy the remainder of the Saxton lectures. So stay, stay tuned for that. Uh, stay tuned for that. And I just I am getting my hands finally on the California conference, uh, the Cal California conference, the, the video of the California conference. So if you haven't already uh, had a chance, uh, you know, you, if you weren't there, I guess, in California, you will soon have the opportunity to watch our amazing Center for Political Innovation conference in California. We had it at the Hotel Milo, the Hotel Milo in Santa Barbara, right there on the beach. It was a beautiful conference and it wasn't just me, um, right? Labor aristocracy declined. It wasn't just me. Um, it was, you know, Convo Couch, David Cedillo, the leader of San Angelo Solidarity, Justin Simons, uh, you know, was there. Um, Wow. Uh, the, you know, the two hosts of Convo Couch, Ramiro Funes, gave an amazing talk on Nicaragua. Uh, it was just tremendous. And it, it was an amazing conference. It's all going up on the web. Uh, there was music the second day. We heard the music uh, of Dr. Michael Pallison, who's a socialist college professor. That was great stuff. So stay tuned for that as well. A lot left to happen on this YouTube channel. A lot left to happen, a lot of good content on its way, but we need you. Yes, you. We need you to help us promote it, help us build this community. So thank you so much, everybody, for the hard work that you have done so far. And so for my opening remarks tonight, I thought I would do things in a completely different way. I would take a U-turn. I was going to do something completely different tonight for my opening remarks. Usually with my opening remarks, we're on here, we're talking about current events, we're talking about Marxist history. Tonight, we're going to talk about movies. We are going to talk about movies. For those of you who didn't notice, uh, if you follow my Twitter page, I recently just started posting these very short tweet-length movie reviews of movies that I, I think uh, the politics of are important to understand. So... For my opening remarks, for my opening remarks tonight, I am going to talk about how many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 
8, 9, 10, 11, 12 different movies. And I'm going to talk about the politics of those, those movies and what we can take from them and how, as Marxists, we can be political. Before we do that, I'm going to tell you a little story. It's a story I'm a little bit embarrassed of, honestly, but it relates to what we're talking about, which is when I was in high school, I was getting into communism, and I was in the school plays, right? I was in the drama club. And one thing that annoyed me was the fact that at high school, it was a public school. It was a public school, which meant that there should be separation of church and state and that there should not be not be religion. But yet before each and every one of the school plays, we had a big, long prayer. And that annoyed me. At the time, I was becoming an atheist uh, and I was offended uh, by the by the, you know, by the lack of separation of church and state, by the imposition of religion on me, somebody who didn't particularly want it. I wanted to be in the school plays. I didn't want to be praying. So I didn't appreciate it. And my senior year, my senior year, I'm in a small town. My senior year, I thought, screw it, screw it. I am, I'm not going to be here. I'm getting out of this town as soon as I can. This is my senior year. Screw it. So my senior year, in the last school play, I demanded equal time. And when we did the prayer before the school, uh, before the school plays, I read from Mao's Little Red Book. And I read the section of Mao's Little Red Book on art and culture. Um, and I annoyed the crap out of everybody. And honestly, I'm not too proud about it. I think there would have been a more winning way to communicate Marxist ideas in such circumstances. And religion's not a very good target, et cetera. But Regardless, that's what I did. And I remember reading, holding up the little red book and saying, all art we produce is for the workers, peasants, and soldiers. And, you know, but one of the um, one of the sections in Mao's little red book or one of the quotations in Mao's little red book about art and culture is Mao Zedong says that all art has a political nature. There is no art for art's sake. All art has a political line and all art is putting forward a political message. And it is the job of revolutionaries to, to determine what art is progressive and revolutionary and what art is counter-revolutionary. And, and that is very, very, very true. All art is of a political nature. All art reflects the society that it was created in. It puts forward an analysis of the society it was created in. It leads the viewer to certain conclusions. And as revolutionaries, it is our responsibility. It is our responsibility as revolutionaries to be interpreting the art around us, finding what is good, criticizing what is reactionary and using it to gain insights into the mindset, um, you know, Fight Club, the mindset of the broad masses. I wrote down Fight Club. It is not one of the movies on my list, but I will talk about it during the, during the second half. And that, that is very important. There was a friend of mine who was in a very obscure Trotskyite organization for many years. Um, that Trotskyite organization uh, required all of its members to work in industry, to work in a factory. And uh, on Saturdays, um, Saturdays, you, you had um, 
you had your your day off. Uh, it was a day off from working on the factory. It was your weekend. And then on Sunday, they had their branch meeting for this Trotskyite organization. All right. Demonic plague. Feudalism. And then on Sundays, they had their branch meeting where they would have their political meeting of their party cell in the factory or whatever. And then after their Sunday party meeting, uh, before they went back to the factory Monday through Friday, uh, before that, uh, they would they would go to the movies. And the reason they went to the movies was so they could discuss the movies with their coworkers, was the idea, and also so they could gain insight into the political line of the movies and how people related to it. So I have often tried to view movies uh, through this perspective, right? You know, um, I've tried to view movies through the perspective of how can I talk about this movie and get my coworkers, my classmates, my friends, my neighbors to understand politics? How can I use these movies to do that? What political line is the movie putting forward and what is it trying to get us to understand? Um, you know, that, that's a good way to look at movies, right? And it's important to see movies. And I'm going to talk about a number of movies on here that I vehemently, vehemently disagree with. And that's okay. That's okay. Because that's, that is why we're here. But I'm going to also praise some good movies. So that's how we're going to do it. That's how we're going to do it. All right. And I must say that all of these movies I like to some degree or other, right? Uh, I mean, with a couple exceptions, all the movies I'm going to reflect on here, many of them have a political line that I vehemently disagree with, but all of them I enjoyed on some level. I wouldn't be talking about them. There's many movies that I've seen that I have no desire to talk about, no desire whatsoever to talk about. But the fact that I'm even talking about them here means it made some impression. And that's true. How many movies have you seen that you just forgot about, right? You, they just fell right out the back of your head. Right. Even if you hate a movie, if you hate it enough to remember it, it had an impact on you. So I'm going to go down the line. The first movie I want to talk about is a movie I saw fairly recently compared to the other ones on this list. And that is the movie Conan the Barbarian. And I saw it. I saw it at the beginning of the pandemic. The very beginning of the pandemic, I watched the movie Conan the Barbarian. And I watched it uh, because good friend George, if he's watching, uh, he recommended that I watch it. I had heard of this Arnold Schwarzenegger movie released in 1982. I had never actually seen Conan the Bar Barbarian. Um, right? Um, my Dems versus Independent Workers Party. Um, I had never actually seen the movie. So I I watched Conan the Barbarian, the 1982 movie by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Watched the movie. And the politics of it were very, very clear. And since we've been talking about Og the Destroyer, I think we it's a great place to start. Og no like Conan Barbarian movie. But anyway... Um, Conan the Barbarian is a right-wing libertarian rant against the new left. That's what it is. It is a right-wing libertarian rant against the new left set 
in a time and place where that makes absolutely no sense. It makes zero historical sense. The politics of, of the movie and the time in which it's set in make zero historical sense. The movie takes place in pre-Christian Europe, pre-Christian Europe, basically. Europe and, you know, it's supposed to be Europe before the rise of Christianity, um, but, you know, there's no Roman Empire either. And it was the Roman Empire that was Christianizing Europe, so it's not very clear, right? Conan is supposed to be some kind of European, European barbarian. He's supposed to be a Germanic European who lives in the countryside, and Europe is not yet Christian, and it is the pre-Christian age in Europe. That's where the movie takes place. The movie takes place in pre-Christian Europe, except there's no Roman Empire, so it doesn't make much sense. Regardless, um, pre-Christian Europe, Conan the Barbarian, um, and the movie is all about how there's this wild, rural man who is a self-made man who overcomes hardship. No one can tell him to do what to do. He's free. He's free. And he's resisting the civilization that is emerging in the cities. And he's free and he's really, really strong. And he was in slavery. He was enslaved and he broke free. And he's really, really strong because they made him push a wheel. And that's what makes him strong is he pushed a wheel. Uh, you know, and he's this free, self-made man, broke free from slavery, and he's a self-made man. But in the cities, in the cities, ah, in the cities, some things are are going badly, right? In the cities, in the cities, uh, you know, you know, things are authoritarian, and there's these authoritarian forces that are emerging, and the most deadly of them is this weird religion that worships snakes. And there's this weird religion of people in the cities who worship snakes. And these people, they get into this trance, they're brainwashed, and they start wearing white robes and they worship snakes. And they all follow a, 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 a black man. Uh, they follow a black man who is played by, um, uh, what is his name? He's the voice of Darth Vader. The guy who is the voice of Darth Vader is the leader of this weird religion of people who worship snakes. Um, and that's that James Earl Jones and 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 James Earl Jones is the maniacal evil cult leader who is recruiting people to join his 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 religion of snake worshipers. And somehow Conan and his friends connect with some king who is deeply upset that his daughter has joined the cult of snake worshipers and he wants his daughter to be rescued. And he says, when you get old, sometimes you just love your daughter. And it's about family values. You don't want riches anymore. You just want the love of a family. And so big, strong Conan the Barbarian, um, you know, big, strong Conan the Barbarian is sent, is sent to Europe. Um, found it. Right. Um, oh, very good. Right. Searching. Discrimination. Um, very good point. Almost libertarian. 
interesting. I've heard. So Conan, Conan the Barbarian, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, goes and infiltrates the cult of snake-worshipping people who are in a trance. They're all brainwashed and they worship snakes and they dress in white. He infiltrates them and eventually finds um, James Earl Jones, beheads him, and frees the people from the cult. That's the movie. Uh, that's the movie, right? Uh, and And it's the new left, right? It's, you know... Conan the Barbarian is hardworking American settler, self-made man, businessman, and the cult are hippies who are recruiting their children to, you know, get away from traditional American values and get away from the family. Uh, and it's the new left ranting against hippies. It's very clear that's what it is. It is the new left ranting against hippies. It's very odd that the leader of the cult is a, a black man. And and that that's very odd that that they're they're doing that. Um, but it's yes, uh, Conan the Barbarian uh, is is sent to go rescue rescue all the people that are brainwashed by the evil snake worshiping cult. And it also hints that what is wrong with the hippies is that there is somehow sympathetic sympathy for for black people, or somehow there's something about that. Because why is there a black man in the middle of Europe at this time? Right? It doesn't doesn't really make any sense. The whole thing is is very odd. None of the followers are black, right? The you know, the leader of the cult is black, but all the people are white. Very strange. And race certainly plays a factor in that film. Uh, you know, and it's a film ranting against the new left. The snake cult is the new left and the hippies and Conan the Barbarian is right-wing conservative man, Ronald Reagan supporter, hard hat, you know, trying to rescue the young people that have been brainwashed by the cult. It's very much the new left. Um, and you can read race into it and all that. It's very, very interesting, but it's a right-wing movie by far. It is a right-wing libertarian movie. The right-wing ideal is what the barbarian is supposed to be. The free man in the rural area. No one tells him what to do. The yeoman of Thomas Jefferson, etc., makes absolutely no historical sense at that time, right? Makes no historical sense, um, at that time. And I know it's based on a, a series of novels that were written, and it's like a fantasy universe and such, but it makes no sense whatsoever, but that's Conan the Barbarian. The political message is a lot like a movie that came out about 11 years earlier, and that movie is called The Omega Man, and that's the next movie I'm going to talk about. Has anyone seen The Omega Man, starring Charlton Heston, right? Not, not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but yet another macho, macho, manly man of Hollywood, uh, Charlton Heston, The Omega Man, 1971. The Omega Man, it's a movie about how there's been a nuclear war. There's been a nuclear war that has destroyed the human race. Charlton Heston is, is some right-wing guy who hates hippies. Um, he hates hippies, and he somehow survived the nuclear war. So every day he wakes up and he goes and sees the movie that happened to be in the movie theater at the time of the nuclear war, which is the movie Woodstock, about the Woodstock concert. And he goes and he watches, he hate watches Woodstock every day and he hates the hippies. And he's, ah, these hippies, I hate hippies. And then he has to go home by the time it's night because at night, all the other people who survived the nuclear war come out, and they're all vampires. That's what the nuclear war did. It turned all the human race into a bunch of vampires. Um, and it's it's based on a novel, The Last Man on Earth. Um, you know, um, 
but it's the Omega Man. Uh, it's based on a, a popular sci-fi horror novel that was from the 1950s. Uh, the nuclear war has turned the rest of the human race into vampires. But in this retelling of that story, um, in this retelling of the Omega Man, I Am Legend, I think is the name of the book, uh, in this retelling of it, the vampires, they aren't just vampires. They're hippies, right? They they don't believe in technology, and they go around destroying technology, and they worship the leader of the hippies is a guy named Matthias, who is supposed to be some kind of weird mystical prophet who's the leader of the leader of the evil vampire hippies. And uh, the evil vampire hippies are going around destroying technology and and trying to make sure civilization never comes back from the nuclear war. Um, yes, and it is it is I Am Legend. It's based on a novel called I Am Legend. There's a version of it called Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. There's a version of it with Will Smith. Uh, you know that you know it's called I Am Legend, but it's based on a novel. But this is one version of it. Is the 1971 film by you know starring Charlton Heston. Uh, which is called the Omega Man. And it's very clear the vampires are supposed to be hippies. Charlton Heston is supposed to be uh, is supposed to be a conservative middle American self-made white man uh, who can't stand can't stand hippies and that, I mean it opens practically. The movie practically opens with him sitting there hate watching the movie Woodstock and talking about how much he hates hates hippies and it's he's conservative American you know American man uh, much like Conan the Barbarian is supposed to represent conservative American man the vampires are the evil hippies that are getting in the way of you know civilization coming back after the nuclear war and also just like in Conan the Barbarian there's some weird racial innuendo because how is it that they eventually, kill him. How is it that they eventually, I'm going to, spoiler alert, how is it they eventually lure, uh, lure the Omega Man, Charlton Heston, out? And how is it the vampires eventually get their, their hands on him? Because there's a black woman. There's a black woman who he discovers. He discovers he's not the only person who can come out during the daytime. There's a black woman. And so there's a black woman with an afro. And so he's like, oh my God, someone else who can come out at night, at daytime. And that's how he's lured out. And again, it kind of hints. Uh, it kind of hints this uh, this message that somehow somehow the problem with hippies is that they're anti-racist, which would fit with what right-wing conservatives thought at the time. You know, Conan the Barbarian came out amid the Reagan Revolution, which was considered a blowback to the confusion of the 1960s, and and uh, you know the Omega Man. Uh, you know that came out during the rise of Richard Nixon. And both of them seem to be championing kind of the the neocon right-wing populist Okie from Muskogee uh, against the hippies. And that seems to be what most of the movies are. And they're politically pretty, pretty bad. They're libertarian films, right? You know, uh, they're libertarian films. They put out this idea that they glorify the individual settler, etc. Um, but there's some weird racial innuendo. The enemy is clearly the new left and the hippies that are threatening threatening the autonomy of the everyman. Um, so those are the first two movies I wanted to talk about. Um, the next movie that I wanted to talk about is a movie that came out the same year as The Omega Man, uh, but is a totally politically different. It's on the opposite side of the political spectrum, and that's a 1971 movie, a low-budget 1971 movie called Billy Jack. Has anyone ever watched Billy Jack? Billy Jack. Right? Has anyone ever watched that movie? low-budget movie made by a bunch of college students uh, called Billy Jack. 
Uh, Billy Jack takes place in 1971, and it is a low-budget film. Uh, honestly, in terms of filmmaking, it is not the best film ever made, uh, but politically, it's definitely a left-wing, anti-racist film. Um, um, approach all right writing it down Billy Jack so the movie takes place out west someplace Arizona Texas someplace like that uh, out in the middle of the desert somewhere there's this little town and there are Native Americans at the town and there are African-Americans at the town, uh, and a lot of them go to this, this alternative school, this like hippie school in the middle of the desert, you know, where, where African-American kids and Native American kids and white hippie kids play together, and it's run by this pacifist woman. It's like this alternative hippie, hippie school in the middle of the desert. But this alternative hippie school in the middle of the desert, um, you know, um, um, my goodness, all right. Uh, this alternative hippie, you know, writing it, writing it down. This alternative hippie school in the middle of the desert uh, has a problem in that it doesn't get along with the local townsfolk, right? Even though the school is full of, it's multiracial and it's, you know, hippies and it's, you know, run by this pacifist woman. This town, you know, the town nearby, this alternative hippie school in the middle of the desert is run by, is run by, uh, it's, they're all a bunch of rednecks. The sheriff is awful and the sheriff's son is awful and they go around killing horses so they can, you know, killing wild horses and giving the money to, to, you know, to, to, you know, dog food companies. And they're just, you know, they, they murder wild horses and they, uh, you know, they, they're just awful, big, mean, racist, you know, right-wing dudes. And, um, the big mean right wing dudes are always beating up the uh, the peace loving hippies uh, of the of the alternative school in the middle of the desert. Um, and then there's this other guy. There's this guy, this local guy who's a Vietnam veteran, a former U.S. military guy who is Native American and is a karate expert. And his name is Billy Jack. And he goes around doing karate and fighting fighting off the rednecks and protecting the hippies. And he's in love with the woman who's in charge of the school, uh, and she's always urging him not to be violent. He's always urging, she's always urging him not to be violent, but he just can't stop being violent because he fought in Vietnam and he's got PTSD and he's a karate expert, etc. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, you know, it's some parts of it are hokey. Uh, one of the clever things that I, I, I guess a lot of the film was improv, which is interesting. Um, you know, the, the kids in the, the actors were into improv. So a lot of the film was actually improv on the spot. There's a lot of scenes in the movie that are like improv kind of theater workshop scenes, which is kind of clever. Um, you know, but overall, yeah, Billy Jack, uh, you know, the woman who runs the school, she gets raped. And so then Billy Jack, you know, you know, goes into karate mode to take revenge for, for the rape against the rednecks who, who raped the girl. And then eventually there's a standoff and, you know, it's like, you know, and he's, you know, there's a standoff with the police and such. 
Yes, it's definitely kinky. It is definitely a B movie. It is definitely a B movie. Um, but uh, it was a cult classic at the time. It was one of those movies that like never stopped being shown. Like every hippie loved it. It was it was anti-racist. It was against the Vietnam War. It was pro-hippie. It was pro-marijuana. It was sticking it to the man. Uh, a very low budget movie. Um, a lot of, and it's worth your time, actually. If you have time to watch Billy Jack, watch Billy Jack. Politically, it's a new left pacifist movie. Um, you know, uh, it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable. Um, you know, same out the same year as the Omega Man, and it's the exact opposite of the Omega Man. And the Omega Man, the hippies are the villains, and Charlton Heston, the middle American guy, is the hero. In Billy Jack, the hillbillies uh, and the middle American people are are the bad ones. And uh, the hero is, you know, Vietnam veteran, PTSD, karate expert, Native American Billy Jack uh, and a bunch of hippie, hippie kids who live out in the middle of the desert. And it, it's certainly amusing. The sequels, they did make sequels to the movie Billy Jack and they're awful, awful. The movie Billy Jack is worth watching. The sequels they made to Billy Jack are not worth watching. They made, you know, The Trial of Billy Jack, Billy Jack Goes to Washington. Those movies are abominable. They are just horrendous movies. Uh, they're just, you can't follow the plot. They just, you know, they're awful. But Billy Jack 1971 is pretty good. And actually, little known fact is that, um, that the movie Billy Jack was actually... It was inspired by another movie. Originally, um, the guy who played Billy Jack, I forget what his name was. He was just an actor, a Hollywood actor kind of guy. And he he apparently made a movie about bikers. He made a movie about, about a group of neo-Nazi bikers who go around, you know, raping women and terrorizing people. And then and then Billy Jack is the he, you know, is the hero of the movie that go, you know that goes around fighting the uh the bikers. Uh, and that movie was called um Born Losers. Uh, it was called Born Losers. And, uh, you know, Billy Jack was, you know, debuted as a character in the movie who fights this evil group of bikers, Nazi bikers who are called the Born Losers. He goes around fighting the bikers. People liked the Billy Jack character and they said, hey, you made a movie about, you know, about these evil bikers getting beaten up by this Native American karate expert. Why don't you make a whole movie about the Native American karate expert? And that's the movie Billy Jack. One people, one thing that people have pointed out is that the movies themselves are very, very hypocritical. Uh, very hypocritical in that they preach nonviolence. Right? The films are pacifist films. Like there are so many, so many, so many uh, pacifist speeches throughout the movie. But the movies are loaded with violence. I mean, there's you know rape scenes. There's you know you know people you know getting you know all these karate punching and knifings and shootings and they're extremely violent films. They made a violent film to preach pacifism, right? I mean it's 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 a little little bizarre, but um, but there you go. And that's uh, Billy Jack, nineteen seventy one. If you're looking for a nineteen sixties counterculture film, if you're looking for a new left film. Uh, you know, you can go watch 1971 Billy Jack. Speaking of which, um, I've talked about this movie on here before, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Um, but I might as well, I might as well talk about it. Um, you know, if you want to know, if you want to see Hollywood wrangling with the question of American communists, uh, and who are they? What are they? 
you got to see the movie Reds. 1981 won Best Director, directed by Warren Beatty, starring Warren Beatty. It's a movie uh, about, it's a fictionalized account of the life of John Reed. Uh, John Reed, the journalist, the American communist who wrote 10 Days That Shook the World. Uh, it's Hollywood made a movie about John Reed. And it's very long um, and uh, it's a decent film. Uh, politically, I would argue that it is subtly anti-communist. It's not blatant. The anti-communism is very carefully tempered. And it's about the founding of the Communist Party USA. It's about John Reed covering the American, you know, as an American journalist covering the Russian Revolution of 1917. What is interesting about it is it portrays the communists in a somewhat sympathetic light. Uh, John Reed and his wife, Louise Brandt, are portrayed as good people good people with high ideals who are fighting against war and fighting against the exploitation of workers and against racism, but they're a little bit naive and it kind of portrays the Soviet Union in a very negative light. Uh, it, it's an interesting movie, right? I would argue the film was very much an appeal to the Euro communists, right? It came out, you know, I mean, it was being made in the final years of the Carter administration as we're getting ready for the Reagan administration. And it was very much, you know, Hollywood saying to you know, the French communists, the Italian communists, the Spanish communists. Look, America doesn't hate communists, doesn't hate communists. You know, you're a little naive for supporting the Soviets, but there's a place, you know, we made this Hollywood movie. It's sympathetic. It, it actually shows communists not as bad people. It shows communists as, as, as people who have good intentions and are kind of doing the right thing. And that's what's weird about it. I argue that just like any other work of art, just like any other work of art, it reflects the period in which it was created, not the period in which it, it, is, it takes place. It's, it's really about the new communist movement of the 70s, right? It's, it's the American mind and Hollywood trying to process all the Maoist communist groups of the 70s, all the Trotskyite communists of the 70s. It, it, it's confused. And you see them, and that there are a number of scenes in the movie that are clearly comments on the American left. Um, at one point, the, you know, the big scene towards the end is when he goes to uh, he goes to Afghanistan um, and they have him in Afghanistan. And there's this crowd of of, you know, people and he's reading a speech and they have a translator reading a speech. And all of a sudden, this crowd of people, guys in turbans in Afghanistan, pull out their swords and shout, Allah, Akbar! you know, and they're waving their swords in the air. Uh, and he says, why are they saying that? And they said, well, we changed your speech to say holy war instead of class war. And he's like, no, you changed my words. And, you know, that was a comment on left-wing support for the Iranian revolution of 1979. That's what that was. That was commenting on the fact that in 1979, the Islamic revolution of Iran happened and genuine communists supported it, even though it was not a communist revolution. And at the time, the American media was just going crazy about how how could any leftist support the Ayatollahs? You know, and it was that was that was the commentary. It's like he's rock bottomed. Look, he's pandering to the, the crazy Muslims. That's the message of the film. Um, so that's Reds. And if you want to see how how like kind of mainstream America was trying to interpret, you know, the communist groups of the 1970s, Reds is worth your time. Um, two movies I really don't like. I've watched both of them once, and I never want to see them again. And they are both pro-communist films, I guess, but I, I hate them both. I, I never want to see either of them again. Land and Freedom and Wind That Shakes the Barley by Ken Loach. Awful. Horrible, right? Politically, I mean, 
Land and freedom I don't agree with about Spain. Wind that shakes the barley is 100% politically correct about Ireland. But I, I never want to see either of those movies again. They're Trotskyite films, right? Ken Loach is a Trotskyite, and he just got kicked out of the Labor Party because he's pro-Palestine. Ken Loach, uh, you know, British Trotskyite film director, and he made two movies. Um, and, you know, polit one's about Spain. It's called Land and Freedom, 1995. Wind That Shakes the Barley, 2006. Uh, it's about Ireland and the Irish national liberation struggle. And both of them basically go like this. There's a group of people that are being horrendously oppressed, and it's awful. But then they rise up, and they revolt. And there's hope. But then that hope is crushed, and the revolution is betrayed. And you feel stick sick to your stomach, and the movie's over. Yeah. It's off. They leave you in a very demoralized place. Um, and he tends to have a lot of violence in there, depiction of torture, uh, depiction of, uh, you know, it's very, they're both highly demoralizing films. Um, you know, and it's like, yep, you know, people are oppressed. It's awful. Then people start to win their freedom. And then the revolution is betrayed by the, you know, by in, in Spain, it's the Stalinists. And in, in Win the Shakes the Barley, it's the Free Staters, the bureaucrats, the Catholic Church. And it all leads you back to square one, and the revolution didn't do any good anyhow. I, it, it's, it leaves you just in an awful place. I, I do not recommend those films at all. I don't recommend them at all. Um, you know, um, I don't recommend them at all. Um, I really don't. Um, you know, they just, you know, they, they are in theory pro-communist films, but they are pessimistic Trotskyite films that don't make you feel excited about being a communist. Um, that said, if there's a movie that is not a communist movie, it's not a communist movie. I would say it is, you know, I, I've heard that Jim Carrey might have some like DSA Marxist proclivities. You know, he's from Canada and he wants free health care and, you know, stuff like that. But it, he's not really a Marxist. But there's a movie called The Majestic 2001 that is it's made by Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey stars in it. And it's an amazing, amazing film. 2001, Jim Carrey, uh, he plays, he's a writer. Uh, Jim Carrey is a writer and he is, he is being called before the House Un-American Activities Committee and they're destroying his career. Um, and so he gets drunk one night and he gets into a car accident and his car goes into the river. Um, and he's washed up on the beach, uh, of this California town, up, up, up the ocean, up the coast. And he's washed up on the beach but he's lost his memory. He doesn't know who he is. So he just kind of wakes up. He's got amnesia. He's walking around. And all the local townspeople of this small town in California see him. And they, they think that he looks just like uh, a young guy from the town who died in World War II. And they think that this guy, this local hero, this local favorite son who died in World War II is back alive. And they think that he is he is this guy who died in World War II. And it's a very touching film. It's deeply touching. Um, it's just a beautiful film. And he's walking around with amnesia while all the people in this little town think that he's, he's the guy who died in World War II. Um, and he's not. He's just this Hollywood writer who's had his career destroyed. Um, and, you know, and he's walking around and he's like, it's, it's like the, the town has hope again. It's like they're, 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 the town is mourning all the people who died in the second world war. And, and it's like, it's giving them hope again and, and all of that. And, um, and, and then of course, you know, eventually he gains his memory and the FBI comes to arrest him because he's a, 
you know, he's a, a, a run from, he has to appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee. It, it's a very beautiful film. And, and it really reflects the values of the Roosevelt era because the people in the small town are not bad people. It's not like the modern left. The people in the small town are good people and they're Rooseveltists and they're anti-fascists. And the House Un-American Activities Committee is seen as being cruel and nasty to the, the working people of this small town. It's a beautiful movie. Um, it's a beautiful movie about community and friendship and the popular front and the defeat of fascism and rejecting McCarthyism. It's a beautiful film and it's not a communist film. I wouldn't call it a communist film by any means. I mean, you know, but it's, it's a, a liberal kind of social democratic, anti-fascist popular front movie. And it's beautiful. It is a beautiful movie. Um, it's anti-racist it is anti-fascist. It is, it is, you know, it's beautiful. I, if you haven't had a chance to go see The Majestic, I would recommend that movie. Uh, of all the movies Jim Carrey has ever made, by far the best movie. Um, you know, and it's Jim Carrey. He doesn't make any funny faces. Uh, you know, it's just, it's about, about, you know, it, it's a beautiful movie. I recommend that. One of my all-time favorite movies is The Majestic 2001. All-time favorite. One of my all-time favorite movies. Now, that brings me to a movie that I, I really, the next movie I want to talk about is a movie I really don't like, uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Have you ever seen Slumdog Millionaire? Uh, Slumdog Millionaire is a movie, I believe it won the Oscar. And it's a movie about a boy in India, uh, a boy in India who's very poor, uh, and he's an orphan boy in India, and he gets on the Indian version of the TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and he wins. And... It's like every question they ask him is a memory. He knows the answer to the question because of like a memory he has. It's a clever premise for a movie, right? Um, it's a clever premise for a movie. Um, and it starts out, you know, the police are torturing him because how could he possibly know the answers? He must be cheating. It's a clever premise for a movie, but it's a right-wing, libertarian, objectivist piece of crap, okay? The message of the film it not so subtly implied is that the people of India are all primitive barbarians uh, who don't understand the greatness of the free market. But luckily, Western, Western financial investment and neoliberalism is saving them from their primitive barbaric ways. It's disgusting. It's a, it is a libertarian objectivist film. It's an Ayn Rand manifesto. One of the, the, the scenes that really makes it clear, that really makes it clear, is that at one point in the movie, you know, he's having a memory of when he worked as a tour guide at the Taj Mahal, right? The kid, you know, he's a self-made man. He's hard work. He goes to the Taj Mahal and he starts giving tours without actually working for the, for the Taj Mahal. So he starts giving tours at the Taj Mahal and he's giving a tour to an American couple. And then, the, you know, the people that run the Taj Mahal see that he's giving tours at the Taj Mahal and he's not licensed. So they start beating him up. And then the American couple res comes in and rescues him. And he's been beaten up really badly. He's like, now you see what the real India is all about. And then the American couple pulls a $20 bill out of their wallet and says, here, kid, now you know what the real America is all about. Now, if you want to talk about free market, you know, propaganda, that, is, I mean, it was so blatant, right? It's like India is barbaric, but American capitalism with our money is, is the hope. It's, despicable, right? It's He's being tortured by the evil socialist regime for being so a, a high achieving person punished for his success. It's crap. It is, it is, it is disgusting. 
Um, you know, I mean, you know, at one point, it, you know, at one point, you know, that there are kids that are begging for money and, and the, the guy who is helping the kids who beg for money is like poking their eyes out, you know, because he thinks they'll get more money if they're blind and stuff like that. And the idea is that see kindness and charity are really sinister and evil when it really gets down to it. And, oh, it was, it's an awful movie. It's some Atlas shrugged fountainhead, you know, anthem, anthem garbage. I can't believe it won Best Picture because, again, it was a movie that you're sitting there watching this. It's awful. It's just just an awful movie. Awful movie in so many ways. Um, just an awful movie. So I, I, Slumdog Millionaire is an awful movie. I don't recommend it. It's a neoliberal propaganda. You know, at one point in the movie, you know, he's, he's looking over like, a, a, you know, an area where there's a big construction site and there's all these buildings that are being built. And he turns to like his brother and he says, I remember when this when this was just when this was just a just a village or whatever. Well, hello, Western capitalism does not bring foreign investment. I'm sorry, but it's like it's like Western capitalism is building cities in India. Bullshit, bullshit. Western capitalism is is you know tearing apart the infrastructure in India. Western neoliberalism is destroying the economy. You know, but you get the idea. You get the idea that basically that that India that India is a country full of savage, primitive, barbaric people. But luckily, American investment showing you what the real America is all about is going to save. It is it is diabolical, free market, libertarian, globalization propaganda. It's an awful movie. Slumdog Millionaire is politically just downright awful. However, there's a movie that came out a few years before Slumdog Millionaire that honestly is one of the best movies I've ever seen. And, you know, politically, there's plenty you can criticize about it. It's pretty good politically. I mean, it's pretty good politically, but I mean, it's not, not where I'm at, but V for Vendetta, 2005, based on the comic book from the 1980s, that is an amazing movie, an amazing movie from beginning to end. Natalie Portman, it is, that is something special, right? Uh, uh, beautifully filmed, cranked up emotions, uh, you know, uh, it, it's an anti-neocon manifesto. It takes place in this, this you know, futuristic Britain uh, where this futuristic Britain, uh, it's like an Orwellian dystopia where the government is rounding up all the gay people and rounding up all the Muslims and putting them in concentration camps and and telling everyone that because of terrorism, they, they have to give up their rights and the media is telling people lies and so there's this weird guy in a mask who starts a, a, a left adventurous bombing campaign against the government. Uh, and this woman, played by Natalie Portman, accidentally gets caught up with the guy somehow. It's a very good movie. It's very well made. Obviously, we don't support left adventurism. Uh, you know, and that was the critique. At the time the movie was made in 2005, every, every Marxist ever said, well, we don't support left adventurism. Well, of course you don't support left adventurism. It's a movie. It's a movie, right? You know, you know, obviously, yes, you know, the, you know, the, the defeat of fascist regimes comes from mass mobilization of the population, not left adventurist violence. Yes, right? Yes, terrorism is a bad thing. It's a movie, okay? People don't dress up like superheroes either, okay? You know, I mean, you know, I mean, it's a movie, right? It's a movie, but politically, you know, Again, the enemy is the neocons who are anti-LGBT and anti-Muslim and building an authoritarian war state regime. And, uh, you know, the, you know, I mean, it's, it is a very powerful, highly emotionally charged, beautiful movie. 
Um, you know, I mean, at the time that it came out uh, politically, it was the biggest middle finger to the Bush administration you've ever seen. Uh, I walked out of that theater. I saw V for Vendetta. I was pumped up. I'll tell you, when I walked out of that movie theater, when the credits came up and they played Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones, um, you know, that was quite a dynamic, powerful film. Uh, if you want to see a really effective work of, uh, you know, it was definitely a highly political left-wing film ranting against the neocons and calling for people to rebel. Uh, I would call, for, you, you got to see V for Vendetta. I mean, that that is really... That is really a dynamic, effective work of 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 of, of film with very with a, an overall, obviously not supporting left adventurism, but but in its perspective of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, you know, a very effective, you know, a very effective left wing uh, film if there ever was one. Around this, you know, around five years after they made V for Vendetta, there was a movie that came out that was very politically confused and. And it came out, and because it was so politically confused, um, the politics of the movie, like, even if you didn't look at it as a political film, because the politics were so incoherent, the plot was incoherent. Robin Hood, the 2010 Robin Hood movie with Russell Crowe, was so confused. It was so confused. Politically, it was so confused in terms of plot. It had no idea what it was doing. You know, it's supposed to be like like the origin story of Robin Hood, right? We all know about Robin Hood. He robs from the rich and gives to the poor Robin Hood, right? You know, the guy in green in the woods and the sheriff of Nottingham, right? The original, the original social bandit outlaw, right? Well... You know, they made this version of it, uh, and it's supposed to be like the backstory, how Robin Hood became Robin Hood. And um, I got to stop shaking the table. It's awful because they couldn't figure out politically what they were saying. Um, at the time, a lot of people thought it was a Tea Party movie, right? And, uh, you know, it was against taxation, against taxation. Uh, and, that you know, there's, you know, the king, Prince John, is incompetent. And, you know, he has no experience, but yet he tries to lead the country into a war, um, you know, and, you know, the idea is that he's supposed to be, uh, he's supposed to be, um, you know, he's supposed to be Barack Obama, who doesn't know how to lead the country and is arrogant or something, but, oh my goodness. So throughout the movie, you know, it's, it's Robin Hood, right? Robs from the rich, gives to the poor. Uh, you know, you really can't have a libertarian movie about that, right? I mean, you know, but at the same time, there's all the, you know, at one point, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a woman, you know, and she's being taxed and she's having to pay her taxes. And, you know, they're walking in line to the tax man, uh, you know, and, and and they say, you know, they said to the woman, you know, how many acres do you own? I own 500 acres. And the, the tax man looks at her and says, no one should own 500 acres. It's supposed to be like a communist, right? We're against private property, punishing people for their success. But then, spoiler alert, the way the movie ends, when Robin Hood sets up his merry men in the, in the middle of the woods, right? It's a big socialist commune, right? And and so they set up in the middle of the woods, right? And that you know, and, and and the narration at the end of the movie is like, and here in the forest, there are no rich and there are no poor, and we hold all things in common and we fight for justice. I'm like, wait, did this go from being a libertarian movie to being a socialist movie now? Like, what the hell is this? Right? Politically, it made no sense. 
And like, what's wrong with the king? Is he a, is he a tyrant? Is the king a tyrant? He's brutal and authoritarian, or is he just incompetent? Right? You know, he's like, ah, oh, I have never done this before, but I shall lead. And the you know, it's supposed to be Obama or something. It's it's it, it is politically so confused. It's trying to be a libertarian movie. It's trying to be a socialist movie. It's trying to be a romance movie. It's trying to be Robin Hood, but it's the backstory of Robin Hood, like how Robin Hood became Robin Hood. You know, I think Russell Crowe wanted to make a sword fighting movie. He likes to do that, Gladiator or whatever. And they made, they made you know, Robin Hood. And it is so confused that the plot isn't even clear, right? I mean, the plot of the movie isn't even clear because it's so confused. It's, it's again, if they had stuck with one political message, if they sat there and said, we're going to make a libertarian Robin Hood, it would have been decent. If they just sat there and said, we're going to make a socialist Robin Hood, it would have been decent. If they just sat there and they said, we're going to leave politics out of this and we're just going to make make a Robin Hood sword fighting movie with Russell Crowe, fine. And they said, well, you know what? We're going to do the Robin Hood backstory, fine. They tried to do so many different things and please so many different audiences. Political message is so incoherent. It, it was not a good film, not a good film. And then that brings me to two films that that were made, uh, you know, they, the, the two films that I really enjoy. Um, and you know, both of these films are horror films and they, they were, you know, one was made in 1969 and the other was made in 1971, two horror films. I, I told you, I love these British low budget horror films from 19, uh, from Hammer film productions, a British film company from the 1950s, sixties and seventies called Hammer, uh, Hammer film productions, low budget horror movie studio. They made two movies. In 1971, they made a masterpiece, a masterpiece called Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And it, it's amazing, okay? It's the, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the story of Jack the Ripper, and the story of Burke and Hare, the grave robbers, all combined into one with a gender-bending twist. So it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, except when he turns into Mr. Hyde, he actually turns into a woman. That's the that's the movie. And it's it's brilliant, right? It's this, you know, this anti-hero played by Ralph Bates, who's an actor. Ralph Bates didn't make that many movies, but he was a very good actor. I like Ralph Bates. I could listen to Ralph Bates talk all day. He was a British actor who was only in like six or seven films, but a very good British actor. Ralph Bates, um, Ralph Bates is, you know, Dr. Jekyll, who's trying to find a cure for mortalities, the scientist who's lonely and doesn't, you know, you know, you know, he's lonely and doesn't have a girlfriend and all of that. And so he's tinkering in his laboratory and he figures out a formula that turns him into an evil woman named, and he tells everyone in the building, the apartment building he lives in, that that's his sister Hyde. Uh, and it's, it's wild. It is a wild movie. It is, and it is clever. And I, I mean, it takes you in a lot of different places and it, it's a, it's a brilliant reinvention of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, Jack the Ripper, Burke and Hare, I, gender bending, titillating. It's, it's certainly a good film. I recommend it. And it's an unknown classic, right? I mean, a lot of people have never heard of this movie. You know, it's like, it's a it's an obscure film, but it's very good. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Uh, and Sister Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is a very good film. Um, now, the other, the other film I wanted to recommend is another horror film from the same film studio, uh, and it's called Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. 
Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, 1969, directed by Terrence Fisher, starring Peter Cushing. Amazing film. Um, it is a sequel to Frankenstein. Dr. Frankenstein is on the run from the police, um, and he's, you know, assuming different names and different disguises, and he's on the run from the police, and he finds a doctor and his wife, uh, you know, he finds this doctor and his wife who are smuggling cocaine, right? The doctor is is basically, uh, you know, using his doctor privileges to write, write fake prescriptions or whatever and smuggling cocaine. And he uses the fact that they're smuggling cocaine to blackmail them and turn their home into his, his Dr. Frankenstein laboratory to get back to making the monster. You get the image of Dr. Frankenstein as this maniacally evil person who is committed to his notion of what social progress is. One of the opening scenes of the film, he's he's sitting in the um he's sitting in in a hotel like lobby and um you know and and he starts uh he starts arguing with uh with a couple people in the lobby of this hotel about about social progress and about if it weren't for the men of science you would be eating, you know, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be eating, uh, you'd be living in a cave and eating animal skins. You know, you'd be living in a cave and wearing animal skins if it weren't for a man of science. It's the classic mad scientist movie. Peter Cushing plays evil Dr. Frankenstein, who is so determined to carry out his project of creating the monster and, and finds this, this wholesome good couple who just happened to be smuggling cocaine to pay for their, you know, to, to buy, you know, buy medicine for their sick mother or whatever. And they're, they're selling cocaine and he blackmails them. It's, it is a, it is an amazing thriller. You're on the edge of your seat. Uh, I mean, it's an amazing film for, and the name Frankenstein must be destroyed. A lot of, a lot of very clever turns in the plot. The way it ends is, is I don't even want to give it away. The way it ends is amazing, right? You don't even see the end coming. Um, many twists and turns. I recommend Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, 1969. So those are the movies that I wanted to talk about on, on tonight's live. I figured I was going to do something a little bit different tonight. I told you about 12 different movies. I told you about, for those who are just joining us, Conan the Barbarian, Robin Hood, The Omega Man, Billy Jack, V for Vendetta, Reds, Land and Freedom, Wind That Shakes the Barley, the, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, The Majestic and Slumdog Millionaire. I told you about all of those movies. I gave you kind of a political analysis of those movies, uh, you know, kind of just my commentary on them. It was a different way to do the live stream tonight, just talk to you all about movies, but Hey, it was great. Um, I enjoyed doing it. I got a lot of super chats to get through. Names and locations, folks. Names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. Names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. Kendall in San Diego. Scotland. Southern California. Ash in Chicago. JT24 in Mississippi. Utah. Temple City, California. Riverside County, California, Kieran from San Diego, St. Louis, Indonesia, Grand Canyon, Arizona, Chris in Philadelphia, Io Hillary in New York City, shout out to you. It's all subjective. Ryan in Oakland, Florida, um, Ryan Preston, retracted message. 
Out Austin, Texas, Springfield, Missouri, Mindanao to Midwest, Lumpia Logic, good fan friend of the program, West Virginia, Micah in Las Vegas, Zach from Seattle, Char Char Darling out in Nassau County. So good to have you. Illinois, Saint An- San Antonio, Texas, Laura Floyd, Marlin, San Diego, uh, Marlin in San Diego, right? Uh, Corona, California, Enoch in Australia, um, uh, Wisconsin, um, Cincinnati, Ohio, Vinicius from Brazil, San Antonio, Texas, White Panther, Caden from Utah, Fusion City, Jeff Studio City, uh, Nampa, Idaho, Emily Cavendish, uh, The Hague in the Netherlands, um, Toronto, Canada, Southwest Florida, Gateshead, England, uh, Tulare, California, Don D is with us. Shout out to you, Don D, good friend of the show, Naples in Florida. Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, uh, there you go. Richard in Tacoma. Um, uh, Paris of the Plains, Kansas City. Mosin from Iran. Carolyn in Staten Island. Sam in Chicago. Los Angeles. Richie in Staten Island. Shout out to you, Richie. And I think you can be a mod. You're now a mod. All right. Riverside, California. Tushar from Connecticut. I think you can also be a mod, Tushar. Tushar, you are now a mod. You are now a mod, Tushar. Um Oh, David from Ontario, and thank you for the super chat, David. Frank in Rhode Island, Yugoslavia. Wow, Julian from San Antonio, Robert from Hawaii, Fort Lauderdale, Lily in Boston. Shout out to you, Lily. Always a good friend of the show. Martin in Ireland, Dario with Tamara in his heart from Brooklyn. Shout out to you guys. Jared from United Corporations of America. Rice from Adelaide, Australia. Wow, so glad to have you all with us tonight. Um, you know, if you want to post this on your social media, that would be great. St. George, Utah, Ryan Preston, you're a good friend. I think you're going to be a mod too, Ryan. Ryan Preston is now a mod. Ryan's awesome out there in St. George. Um, Treasure Coast, Florida. Harold Sullivan says, my stream with Haas and Jackson was amazing. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And tomorrow night, I am going to be streaming with Sobby Sobs of the Fred Hampton leftists. I understand it's already been tweeted out on social media. Sobby Sobs of the Fred Hampton leftists. Um, you know, I'm going to be on with her tomorrow evening. So check that out. That should be fun. Um, you know, uh, we're doing the best we can here, folks. Um, uh, we're just trying to spread the message, spread our unique understanding of city-building socialism, the city-building tendency out of the movement to the masses. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing, and um, it's great. Um, there you go. Um, all right, so um, I will start answering the Super Chat questions. Keep the Super Chats rolling in. Right. The longer the super chats come, the more I have to talk about. So the first one is about Navalny and the Russian elections. I am going to be asking Donald Quarter about that. Uh, I am deferring all questions on the Russian elections for when I have Donald Quarter, an actual witness to the Russian elections, an actual person who's talked quite intensely with the Russian Communist Party in recently months. Donald Quarter will be on this channel giving us an in-depth account of why things happened the way they did with the Russian elections. So uh, that goes for the other person who asked about Navalny and the Russian Communist Party. Both both of you uh, 
hold on, wait until Donald Quarter gets here. He will have an answer. I, I will, I cannot answer anywhere near as well as he can. And he's got a lot of interesting things to say. We're all going to be curious to hear from the Russian Communist Party uh, based on how it looks, based on the exit polls, how they did in the election. We're all going to hear, we're all going to be curious to hear what the Russian Communist Party, the Communist Party, the Russian Federation has to say. We're all going to be very curious to hear about it. So, um, you know, I will hold off on giving you an answer. There you go. Now, the next question is, can China use the collapse of the housing market to benefit socialism? Well, look, President Xi Jinping, he said houses are for living in, not for speculation. And all over the world, there's a problem with real estate speculation. And what it is, is basically that um, that in urban centers, the property values have vastly increased because there's a number of people moving to the cities. And because of that, because of that, uh, property in urban areas is very valuable. So what happens is you have a situation where landlords don't have to have anyone actually live in their building in order to make profits from it. They buy a building, they wait for the market to go up, and then they flip it and they make profits. This is Donald Trump. He started this way. Um, you know, Donald Trump started this way, but things really, he did this in the 70s and 80s. This really escalated long after Trump. And real estate speculation leads to a situation where the price of living can continue continue to rise in the urban centers while the ability of people to pay those rents does not, right? Wages are not going up, but the rent keeps rising. And this is happening all over the world. And China has done the most to crack down on this. The state in China, you know, controls the economy and they can step in at any point and just say, nope, nope. And President Xi Jinping has led a crackdown on this because he's repeated, houses are for living in not for speculation. That is a direct quote from the president of China, right? And that, you know, China has a government of action that fights for working families and they can step in and just, you know, stop, lower the rent, right? Here in New York City, there's some level of rent control and there's there's attempts to do different things, but no, you know, in China, the government just kind of steps in, right? And that they are realizing that real estate speculation, because China has so much foreign investment, because China has thriving urban centers, because of that, um, you know, they have this problem. And so we've seen the Chinese party, the Chinese Communist Party step up to the plate and take it on. And there's no other government, uh, I would argue, uh, that, that has been, you know, that would be in a better position to fight against this, right? China has so many millionaires and so many billionaires, but they also have the Chinese government, which is led by the Chinese Communist Party, a party with 90 million members. Uh, with people in every building, every apartment building, every neighborhood, every rural village has Communist Party members in it, a highly disciplined organization at the center of Chinese society. And that highly disciplined organization controls the economy and controls the means of production. Um, and with that, you know, government of action, with a, a network of supporters all around the country, they're able um, they're able to do things and take action to control the economy for the population. Um, so yes, the, you know, the collapse of the housing market, if that were to happen, if the Chinese housing market were to just collapse, the Chinese communist party would deal with it just like they dealt with the 2015 financial crash in China. I've talked about this many times in 2015, the Chinese stock market went down and U S media announced that's it. China has been growing for years, but we, we told you that their economy was going to collapse. That's the end. We told you the Chinese economy was going to collapse. And a week later, the Chinese stock market was right back to where it was before. 
Why? Because the Chinese, first of all, the Chinese stock market, yeah, it went down. But less than 3% of the population in China is in any way financially tied to the stock market. Most of the Chinese economy is tied to physical economy, not to the stock market. You know, if, if our stock market ever dropped the way Chinese, China's stock market did in 2015, there would be riots in the streets. Food would stop getting delivered. The electricity would go off. Our whole economy is centered around this gambling casino called the stock market. Whereas China's economy is not. They have a stock market, and that stock market facilitates foreign investment. Um, but it's not, the whole economy isn't centered around the stock market. And then after the, you know, the stock market in China went down in 2015, the Communist Party stepped in and they had all of the state-owned industries stop selling stock, number one. Number two, uh, they also stepped in and they they threatened to arrest anybody, anybody, anybody. Anybody who was caught short selling, right? That's betting that a stock would go down. It's called short selling. Anyone caught doing that was threatened with arrest. And when they did that, when they threatened to arrest anyone who was caught short selling, and when they, when they, when they stopped the sale of any stock from the state-owned enterprises, um, suddenly the market was right back up because profits are not in command. The irrationality of the market, the anarchy of production is not in command in China. There is a state-run economy um, in China. They have a state-centrally planned economy. It's an anniversary of Japan's uh, invasion of China. Refused to apologize to Koreans. and Oh, wow. Yeah, we can talk about that for sure. Refuses to apologize to Koreans. All right, we can definitely talk about that. Thank you for that super chat. So the next question I've got is my differences with Sam Marcy. Sam Marcy, for those of you who may not be aware, was the founder of the Workers' World Party, which was a political party that I was a member of for eight years. Um, for eight years, I was a member of the Workers' World Party. I was their golden boy during the Occupy Wall Street protests. And I, you know, most young folks who join the Workers' World Party, they last one or two years, right? Um, you know, one or two years, they join, they're full of enthusiasm. And then after a while, they realize that uh, the party ain't going anyplace. It's not going to expand, um, you know, and then they move on. But I very much was committed to sticking with it, right? I saw... I saw, especially after I moved to New York City, how dysfunctional the organization was. But I was committed because I believed in communism so much and because I was very much an anti-imperialist. I was committed to working hard to continue building the organization. And I, I stayed in for eight years. I stayed in the group and I put up with stuff that you don't even want to know about and I'm not going to talk about on here. And I fought with people and I tried my hardest and I learned to obey and keep my head down. And I endured a lot of verbal abuse and I made a lot of sacrifices and I stayed in for eight years, right? Again, most uh, in the, the time I was in the group, most people in the group stayed for one or two, right? You know, this is how communist groups in the United States tend to be. There's a layer of boomers who've been in, done it their whole life, right? And they were, they've been in it since the seventies and they've, they've been in it their whole life. And then there are these 20-year-olds, people in their 20s who join for a year or two years, 
And then they realize, one, that the group is never really going to grow. And this happens to every group. This isn't just the group I was in. Happens to every group, you know, every, they realize the group is not going to grow, number one. Number two, um, they realize that they're, they're you know, they, they're not going to be able to change the group, right? You know, the group, the, the leadership is very entrenched. These boomers have been there since the 70s. So then they quit. And generally, they move away from politics after that. Um, generally, they just feel like political activism isn't worth their time anymore. And I've seen this. this. This has happened with Maoist groups. This happens with Trotskyite groups. This happens with different organizations. And that's generally how communist groups in the United States have been since the 70s. There's a crew of people that have been there from the beginning and they're not leaving, right? That's their whole life. It's their livelihood, right? They're making money from it and they're never going to leave. But other people join thinking that the group has potential, thinking the group can actually achieve something. And then they join and they realize, oh shit, this group ain't going anywhere. Well, to my credit, I did not quit after one year. I did not quit after two years. I did not quit after three years. I did not quit after four years. I did not quit after five years or six years or seven years. I didn't even quit after eight years. They kind of had to, I mean, I wasn't expelled, but there was this weird, I wanted to step away on good terms, but they weren't, you know, they they escalated things and it was so confused and sloppy. I was never formally expelled because they don't have expulsion procedures and they don't have a constitution or bylaws or anything like that. And I never resigned. I never sent a letter of resignation or anything like that. But, you know, I'm not with them. That became, in about 2015, the fall of 2015, it became clear that I was no longer with them as a group. And it was mutual. I didn't really want to be with them anymore. They didn't really want to have me anymore. Um, it was it was awful, though. I mean, this was a group I was very dedicated to, and it was like my family. I was very close with a lot of people in it. And um, again, I tried to just kind of leave on good terms. And that was not possible. And it's frustrating because I didn't want it to be a very ugly departure, but there were some people in the group that were determined to make it an ugly departure. And, you know, it's funny. Actually, I, I didn't think this would come up. You know, I'm actually reading this because I don't know enough about Jay Lovestone. Do folks know who Jay Lovestone was? Jay Lovestone was a leader of the Communist Party USA during the 1920s very effective labor organizer. And he, you know, he didn't agree with, you know, he didn't agree with, with the third period and with the, you know, the sixth world Congress. So he was kicked out. And when he was kicked out of the communist party, he started his own group, the communist party opposition. And pretty soon he became like a CIA operative. And the thing is like, this is the problem that communist groups tend to have, right? Is that there's this very much with us or against us attitude. Right. Jay Lovestone did not agree with, you know, the third period. And he fought against William Z. Foster's leadership. And he was this labor union activist, very effective labor union activist who didn't agree. And then he became this like important CIA operative during World War II. And the thing was, imagine that the Communist Party had been able to kick out Jay Lovestone, but stay friends with him. Right. Imagine that the Communist Party had been able to say, you know what, Jay Lovestone you know, we're going one way, you're going another way, but we're going to be friends. You know, imagine how different the 1930s could have been if Jay Lovestone and his huge network of labor union activists had not turned against the Soviet Union and had not been bitter anti-communists. Um, but communist groups, they tend to have this with us or against us attitude, right? You know, and it's like, and it was funny. I remember when I was in Cleveland, there was a certain Maoist group and there was this guy this older guy who, who would volunteer with them and go to their events. And um, 
you know, I asked him later, I said, why didn't you ever join this, this Maoist group? And he said, you know why? He said, because I wanted to stay friends with them. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if I ever joined the party, then if we ever had a disagreement, it would be over and I could never speak to them ever again and we'd stop being friends. And that's true. And that's how communist groups tend to be. You know, if you ever join, you know, if you join the Workers' World Party, if you join the, the ISO or the QWH or the SWP or the you know, whatever, you join one of those groups and then you end up leaving, you're the enemy. But if you never join, you can kind of do your own thing and be friendly with them or whatever. But if you, you know, if you... If you join one of these groups and then you're out, all of a sudden that group thinks you are the enemy. And like, it's not smart. It's not smart. And it with Jay Lovestone, right? Jay Lovestone, you know, was a, you know, was a tanky, was, had met with Lenin, had met with Stalin, you know, was a, a very effective labor leader. But, you know, he didn't agree. He just didn't agree with how the Communist Party was operating when they were leaving the AFL. They quit the AFL. So, he and a large percentage of the Communist Party, they didn't agree with the orientation that it was time to fight against the American Federation of Labor. He wanted to infiltrate the American Federation of Labor. He'd invested his whole life into trying to get inside the American Federation of Labor and, and maneuver for communists from within it. And when, when the decision came that, no, we're going to quit the AFL and start our own unions, he wasn't going to have it, right? And so when, when that happened... Jay Lovestone was kicked out of the Communist Party with thousands of people. They were all kicked out of the Communist Party and they were declared to be American exceptionalists and they were the enemy. And again, I understand that the Communist Party was a democratic centralist organization and it needed to shift, right? It needed to shift its tactics and the third period was correct. But couldn't they have found a way to say, okay, Jay Lovestone, you're not with us anymore, but you're not our enemy. You're not our enemy. You know, we don't think you're a traitor. We just think you don't agree with us anymore. And we're maybe, that's just decent. That's how relationships work, right? Is that, you know, you should be able to, you know, I mean, look, you've probably had a friend like that, right? You know, somebody you know, and they were a really close friend to you for a while, but you, you drift apart, but you don't hate them. You don't think they're your enemy. You don't want to kill them. You don't have a nasty falling out. You just kind of drift further apart. You're not as close as you once were. Communist groups don't seem to be able to do that. You're with them or you're against them, right? So, you know, I tried my hardest to drift away from the Workers' World Party, you know, to, you know, to just, but you can't do that. You can't do that. And I'm not the only one. Everyone who has ever left that organization is racist. Did you know that? Everyone, I've been told, I, the whole time I was in the group, I heard nothing but PSL is racist. PSL is racist. Brian Becker's racist. Gloria Lariva's racist. PSL are racist. PSL's not racist, okay? PSL, there were some organizational differences. I don't, I'm not in the PSL and I'm not endorsing the PSL and I'm not endorsing, endorsing but they're not racist, okay? But PSL, they were the most evil people. And, you know, and, and this is a problem with communist groups, Okay with us or against us. And it, it's, we need to get over that. That's why I'm not building a party, you know, because if I built a party, then all of a sudden my approach to all these groups would have to be with me or against me. I'm not doing that. I'm building a think tank, a think tank 
because I want to be with everybody. I want to be able to carry out a project for socialist education to maximize, to reach as big of an audience as I possibly can, to talk with people with whom I disagree, and to get to the broad masses of people with a basic socialist Marxist understanding of politics. That's why I'm building a think tank. Because if I built a party, suddenly I'd have a party that was competing with all the other parties. And I don't want to do that. I am not interested in being the chairman of a party. I'm not interested in, you know, playing my party is bigger than your party. I'm not interested in any of this, okay? I am interested in preaching socialism. I am interested in giving classes on socialism. I am interested in publishing books on socialism. I'm interested in building a community of solidarity of people who believe in socialism and want to spread a socialist message among, among the population. And if you want to be part of it, you're welcome. And if you don't want to be part of it, that's fine. And I'm not trying to wreck your party, and I'm not trying to compete with your party, and you can be a member of your party and be in my party or be in my group or whatever. You, I'm not, you know, I'm over this. I am so over this childishness. So I just want to get that off my chest, right? So people who say that I'm, oh, you know, you used to be in this group and you betrayed them. No, I didn't betray them. I tried my hardest to stay on good terms with them. But, you know, I was out of the group and I thought, okay, I'll just drift away quietly, but I became the enemy. And so, you know, as far as they're concerned, I'm the enemy. Well, okay, all right, you know, I didn't think, you know, you would want me to be the enemy, but that's how these things go. So that brings us to what are my political differences with Sam Marcy, who was the founder of the Workers' World Party? What are my differences with him? Um, I never met him, right? He died in 1998, Right. Um, when I was, you know, I was still uh, uh, an elementary school student when Sam Marcy died. I never met him. Uh, the Workers World Party was founded in 1959. It was founded in 1959 as a split from the Socialist Workers Party. But let me let me back up. Right. Because first of all, if you want the whole story, I'm not going to I'm going to give you a real quick overview here. Go and watch, I did a podcast called The Legend of Sam Marcy with Brent Langle. And I just, I went over Sam Marcy's entire life story, his entire ideology and worldview. That's the most in-depth look at Sam Marcy that you'll ever find, by the way. You know, nothing on the internet compares to that video. And I never met him. I'm sure there are, there are people that could give a much better version of that, that podcast than I could. Uh, but there you go. But anyway, my differences with Sam Marcy. So, Sam Marcy, he was a member of the Communist Party. Um, he quit the Communist Party. He joined the Socialist Workers Party, but he never really fit in with the Socialist Workers Party, the Trotskyites, because they were just too anti-Soviet. And Sam Marcy was loyal to the Soviet Union. He had a feeling that despite not agreeing with Stalin, despite not agreeing with the Communist Party of the Soviet Union's leadership, the Soviet Union was on our side and he came up with a theory, his own interpretation of Trotskyism, called the global class war theory, which was basically that, that even though the Soviet Union has a quote-unquote Stalinist bureaucracy, it's still on the right side of history. And the best way to defend the Soviet Union, uh, the best way to oppose the Stalinist bureaucracy is spreading communist revolution all over the world. In his mind, you know, Trotsky was the ultimate tanky. Stalin was a moderate compared to Trotsky. Trotsky, with his theory of permanent revolution, spreading communism all over the world, tearing down imperialism. Trotsky, Trotsky was the real tanky. Trotsky was the real tanky. Stalin was the moderate. Stalin, you know, signed deals with the West and Stalin aligned with the USA during World War II, et cetera. So, and he had this kind of reinterpretation of Trotskyism where Trotskyism is like a form of anti-revisionism, right? You know, they're anti-revisionists, I guess, but 
Trotsky, you know, Trotsky was the true anti-revisionist. Stalin was a revisionist. Trotsky was the true tanky hardliner. That's how Sam Marcy saw things. And you don't get that from Trotsky, right? There's a lot of contradictions there. And I read Trotsky and when I was in the group and I would point out that it doesn't match. And they would just say, at one point, I think someone said to me, if you're going to be in this group, you just can't think about that. And it's like, oh, okay, well, there you go. Sam Marcy was a very charismatic man, a very good writer, a very good speaker, um, and a very good organizer. And he knew how to organize people. And he had his own unique interpretation of Trotskyism. And he built, you know, he built the Workers' World Party as an activist-oriented, you know, Marxist communist group. Uh, and he recruited a lot of 1960s radicals. And, um, you know, basically in the final years of his life, he oriented them to become kind of the stage managers of the anti-war movement and to run the anti-war rallies. That was Sam Marcy. My differences with him are thus. Number one, Trotskyism is counter-revolutionary. I mean, I'm sorry, but Sam Marcy's reinterpretation of Trotskyism is bullshit. Trotskyism is counter-revolutionary, okay? Right? Trotsky, Trotsky was aligned with the imperialists against the Soviet Union. Trotskyism is a counter-revolutionary movement. Trotskyism is Eurocentric. Uh, the theory of permanent revolution is not correct. Sam Marcy's, you know, schizophrenic interpretation of Trotskyism, wrong. Number one. Number two. Number two. Um, you know, Sam Marcy, he thought that the cultural revolution in China was good. And the cultural revolution in China was not good. The cultural revolution in China... It kept China poor. It made people's lives miserable. Uh, it was awful, right? And, you know, there are many people in China who love the Communist Party, hate capitalism, but also think the Cultural Revolution was a disaster. But Sam Marcy, because China presented the Cultural Revolution as being more radically communist, of being more egalitarian and having even more even distribution of wealth and reasserting communist principles, Sam Marcy supported the Cultural Revolution and he also supported the Gang of Four. When Deng Xiaoping arrested the Gang of Four, Sam Marcy spoke up in support of the Gang of Four. That was wrong. He shouldn't have done that, right? That And many communists around the world who liked Sam Marcy vehemently disagreed with him on that point um, and said, you're just wrong, right? Um, you, know, you know, but Sam Marcy supported the Cultural Revolution and Sam Marcy thought the Cultural Revolution was Trotskyist, right? Which, I mean, maybe it was, but, that's not good. In Sam Marcy's mind, you know, that, you know, Trotsky called for a political revolution in the Soviet Union against the bureaucracy. And according to Sam Marcy, uh, the Gang of Four and the Lin, and Lin Biao were waging a kind of, you know, political revolution against the Stalinist bureaucracy. And that in Sam Marcy's mind, the real Trotskyists were Mao and Kim Il-sung and Fidel Castro because they were spreading communist revolution around the world after World War II. Um, and that's just, that's not correct. The Cultural Revolution was a nightmare. It hurt China. It, it, it led to chaos in the country. It hurt the economy of China. It was not the right thing to do. Mao is going to be remembered as one of the most important world leaders in history, and his achievements are massive. But the Cultural Revolution was awful. And Sam Marcy's delusion that it was good, uh, you know, was ultra left, right? But that was his orientation, right? He liked Trotsky because Trotsky was so much more radical than Stalin so, of course, he's going to like the Cultural Revolution because it's so much more radical, you know, than Deng Xiaoping, but not good. My third disagreement with Sam Marcy would be um, that Sam Marcy considered um, Libya and Iraq and Syria 
countries like that, the Ba'ath countries, he considered them to be bourgeois nationalist regimes. He, he maintained that if you don't have a communist party, a Marxist-Leninist party in power, and if you don't have a fully state-run economy, you're not really socialist. Uh, you know, um, he, he maintained that, uh, that Iraq, Syria, Libya, that, uh, you know, the, the, the various, you know, the, the government of Julius Nyerere in, in Tanzania and, you know, uh, Zimbabwe and, it, you know, that basically he maintained that unless you, unless you become another Soviet Union, unless you have a Soviet style economy, uh, you're not socialist. Right. And that China, and then it gets weird because Yugoslavia had a very mixed economy. China had a very mixed economy. And he maintained they were still socialist because there'd never been a counter-revolution, which is that that was his position, right? Because they had been like the Soviet Union at one time, and the Communist Party never, you know, never gave up power and there was never like a full counter-revolution. Well, they still had they weren't fully capitalist yet. They were still socialist, right? And with China, it was like he didn't like Deng Xiaoping. He didn't like the market reforms in China, but they were still, the Communist Party was in power, so they weren't, it wasn't totally lost yet, right? Yugoslavia, okay, they have a lot of market reforms and stuff, but the, the communists are still in power, so it's not lost yet. But Iraq, Libya, Syria, you know, Tanzania, Ghana, you know, all of these socialist leaders that weren't explicitly ML, they weren't explicitly Marxist-Leninist, and they didn't create exact models of the Soviet Union, they weren't socialist. I think that's wrong, right? I think that's incorrect. I think one can have a socialist society and not be Marxist-Leninist. I think that, you know, that Islamic socialism in Libya, there was no economic difference when it really gets down to it between Cuba and Libya, between China and Libya, it's the same economic system. And the same for the Ba'ath countries, Syria and Iraq, the same for other, there are various countries around the world that have basically socialist economies. And that that if you, if you put all the emphasis on do they have a Marxist-Leninist party or not, you're missing the point because ideas don't define reality, material conditions do. The economy isn't socialist because the leader at the top says, I believe in Marxism, Leninism. It's socialist because of how the economy works, because of you know, how the means of production function. If the means of production function for the benefit of society, that's socialism. And if the means of production function according to the profits of private owners, that's capitalism. Um, and that kind of that kind of differentiation. And I came to this conclusion when I was in the Workers' World Party. It was during the Libyan War. I studied Libya excessively. I studied the Green Book. I studied Gaddafi. I came to the conclusion that Libya was socialist. And I came to this all on my own. And I argued with Workers' World Party people about it, and they couldn't convince me otherwise. And then I met people in the Detroit branch of the Workers' World Party, like younger people like myself, and they thought the exact same thing. And then I met my good friend Nick, who runs uh, Flame of Liberation, uh, the, the website, uh, the blog, Flame of Liberation. And he, he lived here in New York, and he thought the exact same thing. And I met all, I mean, I was not the only person who thought this. And so the fact that there were a number of people who thought the same thing as me was further confirmation uh, that, uh, that, that I was correct. So that's the third thing I would disagree with. The fourth thing I would disagree with Marcy on uh, was that that Sam Marcy's orientation was very much take over the movement. Um, he argued that the way for the Workers' World Party to become the leader of the revolution was they become, quote, the leaders of the movement, right? That they were going to become the people who got the permit and set up the stage for the anti-war rallies, you know, and that I don't agree with. 
I think we need to get out of the movement and get to the masses, right? That we need to get to the people. We need to essentially organize the unorganized. The people across the United States who have never met a socialist, never met a communist, those are the people we need to get to, right? And that this idea of trying to be king of the protest cage, you know, you know, that's a dead end, right? And that was Marcy's orientation. And maybe during the 1980s, you know, when he kind of set that strategy, it made sense, but I don't agree with it. So those are my four disagreements with Sam Marcy. Trotskyism, the cultural revolution, the, na- the class nature of both socialism and, and non-Marxist socialist states, and movementism. Those are my four disagreements with him. And, you know, I, it's a shame that he's not still alive because I would love to be able to sit down with Sam Marcy and debate him on those things. Um, you know, and who knows? I mean, you know, but who knows? Um, the sad thing was that nobody in the Workers' World Party could really, um, you know, could really have a productive conversation with me about these things. My differences around these issues emerged while I was in the party. Um and every time I would bring these issues up, most people in the party just said, well, that's not important, right? It's about the struggle, man. It's just about the struggle, man. You know, um, that was their attitude. They have this kind of, they don't care about ideology. It's just about activism. It's just about the struggle, man. We don't care about that. So most of the people in the party just didn't care about these issues, okay? And then there were a couple people who did, and those people who did couldn't have a conversation with you about it. They just would start yelling. They would just start yelling at you, right? It was just, you know, well, Sam Marcy said, and, you know, and, the, you know, you know, they'd start screaming and waving their fists around and, you know, and, and they would just, you know, how dare you question me? I know it all. And, and it, it, they, it's like a religion, right? They believe it because Sam Marcy said it, right? It's a cult of personality, it was very much a personality cult. Sam Marcy was the great leader, and it made sense to him. And if I ever met Sam Marcy, I, he would probably be able to argue with me about these things. But the people that were in charge had been Sam Marcy's bulldogs, basically. They'd been, they'd been the people that, you know, Sam would say, you know, the sky is red. And they'd say, that's right, Sam, the sky is red. You got it. You know, they never thought of these things through. And so when I would come forward and say, hey, why is Iraq under Saddam Hussein not socialist, but, you know, but but China today is, all they could do is start shouting and getting angry. And most people in the Workers' World Party would just go, we don't care. We don't care. You know, it's about the struggle, man. We don't care. And that made it really hard. I tried to build the group. You know, China, it's, it's very hard to get people to understand why China is socialist. And I remember there were a number of younger folks that I recruited into the party who didn't agree about China being socialist. And I remember one time I was at the office and I was trying, I was arguing with these newer recruits about China being socialist. And I was arguing with them about it. And this older lady who thought she knew it all walks in and I'm trying to explain, you know, it's not an intense argument. I'm just trying to explain how China is socialist. She walks in and gives me this like, shh, we don't do that. And she said, guys, guys, when we say China is socialist, we just mean we don't want the U.S. imperialists to mess them up. We're against the war. That's that's all it is. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You know, and these young people that I had recruited to the party were serious Marxists, okay? They were serious Marxists. And that, you know, I, I just thought there and it was like, I just sat, I was just like, wow. I mean, that moment I, I just realized like, what the hell? You know what I'm saying? I'm sorry. I mean, these people that came around were very serious and well-read and they had joined the group. I'd recruited them to the group and they didn't agree with us about China. And I'm trying my hardest to explain to them the socialist nature of China's economy 
And the, I mean, the, the older senior members say, no, we don't care about that. We don't care about that. We just care about, you know, you know, uh, we just care about, you know, you know, the struggle man or whatever. Oh, we just want the U.S. imperialists to leave them alone. Well, don't we want the U.S. imperialists to leave every country alone? I mean, I mean, th that's not an answer. And that there's a lot of that. There was a lot of this simplistic thinking. There was a lot of, you know, just just go along with what the party says, just, you know, and the beliefs were not coherent, right? And that's why the group never survived. And I maintain that Sam Marcy, when it really gets down to it, I maintain that Sam Marcy was a genius. He was a brilliant organizer. Uh, but at the same time, you know, on the one hand, he realized, you know, he, he actually wrote a document called a ten From a Tendency to a Party where he argued that the Workers' World Party was not really a party. It was a tendency uh, because it did not have factions. It did not have formal procedures. It didn't have a constitution. He said, we're a group of activists who agree with each other, but we're not a party. Um, and I think that, um, you know, that, that you know, the, the Workers' World Party, he wanted it to become a party. But in order for it to really become a party, he would have to give up his power. Right. Because, you know, and he would have to develop a coherent belief system or at least loosen it. Right. And, you know, I mean, the Workers World Party, they want you to agree with them about everything, everything. Right. I mean, about every historical event, the cultural revolution, everything. And if you come in there and you don't agree about this event or that event, I mean, you know, either you just keep your mouth shut about it. Or, or, you know, suddenly, you know, someone's going to start yelling at you and how dare you. I mean, either they, you know, I, you know, it's like with, with, with very, very, very specific of specific interpretations of the Cold War and a not really coherent way of explaining them, it's very, very hard to build a party around that, right? If they were going to become a party, they would need to have disagreements. They would need to have factions. They would need to, have, I mean, you know, and they, they were not a party. They were, they were a sect. You know, they were a sect. Um, they were, uh, you know, they're they're a a political sect, basically. Uh, unlike most political sects in the United States, they are anti-imperialist and they remain that. Um, and they were oriented toward building very big anti-war protests, which is a contribution that needs to be made. So I respect them as an organization. I respect them. Um, you know, and I wish they were healthier and I wish they were better. And I wish there was a way I could, I could have left without, um, you know, without, you know, it blowing up like crazy. Um, and that's why I'm not joining a party at this point. I'm building a think tank because I don't want to build another unhealthy sect, right? Which is largely what we have in the United States. We have unhealthy sects that are isolated from the masses. And so there you go. That was a long answer to a question, but it's the kind of thing I think a lot about, you know, having been in that group for eight years and having spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the hell happened. And, you know, I think about it a lot. So when you ask me a question like that, you're going to get a long answer. But go and watch the podcast. If you really want an answer about Sam Marcy, go watch the podcast. Next question. <sighs> Labor aristocracy. Um, Labor aristocracy declining. How can I tell the labor aristocracy is declining? The life expectancy of the United States is going down. Number one, um, that's that's one sign. Uh, number two, uh, you can see that the infrastructure of the United States is is falling apart. Number three, one big part of the labor aristocracy was home ownership. Right? There's actually a, I remember there's a very good book published about the history of American lawns. I don't know if you ever heard of this. There's a, about the history of American lawns and how in the fifties the American lawn, right? You have that perfectly mowed lawn that was part of the bourgeoisification. Uh, of the American working classes. They had their own lawn and they had lawn mowers 
and and you know and and they had their little piece of property that belonged to them with their white picket fence around of it. Well, back during the uh, financial crisis of 2008, 2009, those family homes started getting foreclosed. Uh, now all through middle America, there are houses that people live in that people don't own. They rent them from big banks, big banks, uh, you know. Um, so at this point, yeah, the rate of home ownership has vastly decreased. That's a sign of the decline of the labor aristocracy. Home ownership was a very big part of the labor aristocracy. And the fact that there's been a significant decline in home ownership, that's a sign that the labor aristocracy is in decline. Uh, wages decreasing, that's another sign that the labor aristocracy is in decline. Um, the, you know, uh, I mean, I, 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 these all, these are all things that point to the labor aristocracy being in decline. So there you go. Um, and consciousness is changing. People in the United States largely feel the government is run by a group of people that don't care about them. You know, I, I listened to the, the rhetoric of this woman who was a big supporter of recalling Gavin Newsom, this actress, the blonde haired girl with short hair. What was her name? I don't remember. It just sounded like populism. It was just populism. You know, um, you know, and, you know, it was just populism, right? And average Americans at this point have, a, have an anti-establishment kind of populist perspective. That's not Marxism, but we can make it into Marxism if we try. So there you go. Uh, what do I think of the movie Fight Club? So the movie Fight Club, okay, you can put it in the same category um, as The Matrix, uh, as uh, there was a movie called Surrogates with Bruce Willis. Um you know, this was, these were kind of vaguely anti-capitalist, anti-establishment, anti-media movies from, from the, you know, the 90s, the, the 2000s. It was before, you know, before things, you know, really before 9-11, you, you had, you know, the anti-globalization protests uh, against the World Trade Organization. You had a feeling that, you know, that, the media was kind of brainwashing people and the mass media of cable news and stuff was kind of brainwashing people. The internet was very new and there started to be alternative communities on the internet where news that like mainstream media wasn't reporting would get out. Uh, the internet was very new and there was this kind of, you know, this the, there were these movies that were made like The Matrix, like Fight Club that were like Gen X, Gen X critiques of consumerism brainwashing and mass media culture. And Fight Club, I put it in that category. Um, it's a very male film. Um, and a lot of Fight Club is about the crisis of masculinity, you know, single mothers and the impact of mass media. And like, what does it mean to be a man in this, this you know, in this modern society? Um, you know, and, the, you know, mass shootings were starting to become a thing, Columbine and all that. And it's like, we're starting to get towards this crisis of masculinity. What does it mean to be a man? But there's also this kind of anti-corporate feeling and anti-consumerism. Again, it's not populist anti-capitalism, right? It's, it's this kind of, it's the matrix. It's, it's, um, you know, it's we're the enlightened few, who can see through the lies and we're mobilizing and we're kind of trying to maintain our dignity. Uh, I put it in that category. I would put, I would put fight club in the same category as the matrix in the same category as surrogates uh, in the same category as, um, as they live. Uh, that's a much earlier film, a very good film. They live. Um, it's, it's a unique brand of kind of gen X 
anti-capitalism, probably heavily influenced by anarchism uh, and, you know, politically aligned with like the World Trade Organization protests, uh, you know, the Seattle anarchist scene. You know, it's it's that kind of, um, you know, Anita Roddick is a writer uh, that you might associate some of it with. Anita Roddick, uh, the heyday of democracy now and Amy Goodman. Um, I remember those days vaguely. I was just becoming politically aware. You know, you know, it, it kind of reflects rage against the machine, the music of rage against the machine. Uh, Tom Morello, you know, it was before the war on terror, there was this anti-capitalist current that had, you know, had survived after the fall of the Soviet Union that was not exactly communist, but was vaguely anti-capitalist, was inspired by the history of the labor movement, but was also kind of critiquing mass culture um, and was not communist. It was kind of disconnected from communism. And sometimes it called itself anarchist and sometimes it didn't. It was kind of the Gen X radicalism, the Gen X leftism, the people who marched for Mumia Abu-Jamal, right? A lot of young white anarchists uh, marched for Mumia Abu-Jamal. A lot of punk rock fans marched, marched for Mumia Abu-Jamal. Um, and it's like that, right? The people who read books by Murray Bookchin and Noam Chomsky in the 90s, right? It's like, it's the, that's the kind of politics that Fight Club largely represents, I would argue. It's a novel by Chuck Palahniuk. I've never read the novel. I don't read fiction generally, um, but that's how I would interpret. Um, all right, so how is the bubonic plague and feudalism paralleling the pandemic of today and capitalism? Well, the bubonic plague made apparent a lot of the problems with feudalism, right? It was a, it was a crisis that highlighted a lot of the problems with the current social order and possibly laid the basis for ending it. And perhaps you could argue that the pandemic has laid the laid bare and made apparent a lot of the problems with capitalism and maybe possibly is awakening people about the need to end it. Let's hope so, right? Um, I can certainly hope that that's the case. So there you go. All right, what about the Democrats versus an independent workers' party? I, I'm okay with both, all right? I don't buy into this argument that thou shalt never vote for a Democrat because the Democratic Party is the party of capitalism. Thou shalt always vote for a third party because that is the law of Marxism. If thou hast strayeth from it, thou art a revisionist and shall be burned at the stake. I, I don't buy that mindset, okay? Right? Karl Marx endorsed Abraham Lincoln, who was a Republican. Right? The Communist Party USA in the 1930s. In 1936, they endorsed Roosevelt, who was a Democrat. That was the right thing to do. Um, you know, generally, you shouldn't vote for the Democrats or Republicans, but there are exceptions, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, you know, there's a Democrat in New York City named Charles Barron, and he has a he's a black nationalist, and he has a picture of Lenin in his office, and he was a personal friend of Gaddafi. And he supports Hugo Chavez. And he's a former Black Panther Party member. I have campaigned for him in the past. I don't campaign for anybody now that I'm a journalist. But years ago, I campaigned for him. I would vote for Charles Barron, no matter what letter was next to his name, because he's Charles Barron. Okay? 
Um, and that's what the Trotskyites would always taunt us with. Charles Barron's a Democrat. I don't care. He's Charles Barron. I'm not voting for the Democratic Party. I'm voting for a guy with a picture of Lenin in his office who's a black nationalist who likes Gaddafi, who, you know, is pro-Venezuela. That's who I was voting for. A guy who went to Gaza to support the Palestinians, for Christ's sakes. Charles Barron, I was voting for Charles Barron. You know, and so, you know, now Charles Barron at one point, he formed the Freedom Party, which was kind of a, um, you know, like a, a break from the Democratic Party. It was like black nationalist and socialistic in its orientation. And then he merged back into the Democratic Party. And, you know, largely I favor not voting for Democrats. But, you know, it, in local areas, sometimes you can get folks that are Democrats that do really good work. In local areas, and like in New York City, where I currently live, currently live, for example, the Democratic primary is the election in New York City. It is right. So if you don't vote in the Democratic primary, I mean, you're not really voting in New York City. Um, you know, I mean, it's like you know the Republican, their name is there, but they're not. They ain't going to win. The Democrats run New York City pretty much, except like in the mayoral race. That there's an exception there, but you know, in city council elections, the Democratic primary is the election. Um, you know, uh, and so it, it just depends, right? Again, I, I have obviously think it would be better if we had an independent socialist party. I like the movement for the People's Party and what they've done. I think it's really exciting. I think AOC is a huge disappointment, um, a huge disappointment. She's let me down in so many ways. The squad are definitely not really socialists and all of that. But look, I mean, what if, uh, what if, you know, what if Tulsi Gabbard was able to become a Democratic candidate for Congress again or something, right? I mean, that would be a situation, right? What, a, what about, um, imagine that, you know, imagine that, that you know, that, that Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, you know, changed his mind and became much more anti-imperialist and was running as a Democrat again. I mean, there, there are situations where it might be tactical to vote for a Democrat. But for the most part, I'm opposed to voting for Democrats. For the most part, yeah, I vote for third parties. I favor an independent workers' party being formed. But at the same time, there might be situations where it's tactical. There might be situations where it's good to vote for a Republican. You know that? You know, there might be situations where the Republican is the correct one, where the Republican is more anti-war, where the Republican is more labor union-oriented, right? Politics in the United States is getting so weird you shouldn't make big laws. Thou shalt not vote. Don't do that. Never say never. Be open to any tactic that will advance the struggle of the working class. Lenin said, if the situation changes in 24 hours, the tactics must also change in 24 hours. In 1864, it was a correct tactic for Karl Marx to support Abraham Lincoln. In 1936, it was a correct tactic for the Communist Party to support Roosevelt, a Democrat. But in our current time, I would argue there are very few Democrats and very few Republicans that are worthy of our support. There are some exceptions, especially in the local level. Like I said, Charles Barron here in New York, I have a high opinion of. But for the most part, I generally think tactically it is our in our best interest to expose both of the major parties and to call for socialism. But if there were to be a situation where, you know, that was not the case, I would be open to it. Um, and that that's the way I see things. Now, the recent study that was done about discrimination in searching, right? I mean, stop and frisk. We used to have stop and frisk in this city. And everyone knew stop and frisk was racist. I lived in this city. 
for years while they had stop and frisk. I went up and down. I went up in the Bronx. I went up in Harlem. I lived in Queens. I went to Brooklyn. I was all over Manhattan. Never once in my entire time living in this city while stop and frisk was in effect did I ever get stopped and frisked. Why? Because I'm white, right? Stop and frisk was racially discriminatory, right? It was this policy where the New York City Police Department could search people for weapons at any point. If you're on the subway, they could stop you and search you for weapons with no just cause. And they they went after black people. And there's no question about it. In my mind, the data speaks for itself. Stop and frisk was racist. It was absolutely a racist policy, right? Grabbing people off the trains and patting them down to see if they have a gun, you know, grabbing random people on the street and and humiliating them in front of their friends and, and you know, patting them, you know, searching them for weapons and asking them questions. Stop and frisk, stop it, stop question frisk, stop and frisk was a racist policy. No doubt about it. It was targeted at black youth and black males primarily. It was aimed at young black men. It was about humiliating them. And I'm really glad it was gotten rid of. Cornell West and people associated with the Revolutionary Communist Party led sit-ins against Stop and Frisk, and that was a very good thing they did. And you know who exposed themselves by not opposing Stop and Frisk? The National Rifle Association. Right, all these gun people that are all about the government's taking away our rights. They're taking away our rights. They're gonna. They're violating our rights. Well, tell me, the government of New York City had a policy. Not only is it illegal to have a gun here. Don't even think about having a gun here. You have a gun here, you go to jail for years. Right? If you have a gun, you don't just like get it taken away. They like just they put you in jail for years for illegally having a gun. So don't even think about having a gun in this city. But. Regardless, right? Not only can you not have a gun in this city, but on top of that, the police have this policy that to make sure that nobody has a gun, they get to stop random people and violate their rights under the U.S. Constitution and subject them to unlawful searches and seizure. U.S. Constitution says they can only search you. They can only search you if they have a warrant. Right. And obviously, if you get arrested and they want to make sure you're not going to fight them, they can search you for weapons at that point. But the idea, the idea that you can stop random citizens on the street and be like, hey, there, let's stop him and search him, make sure he doesn't have a gun. Every gun nut in the world, every gun rights activist should have gone, oh my God, the entire national Wayne LaPierre and the entire national board of the NRA should have been protesting stop and frisk from the beginning. That's ridiculous. If you were to try and implement a policy like that in Idaho or in Utah or in Wyoming, and and you said, oh, we're going to stop random white dudes driving their cars to just search their cars to see if they have guns, these people would lose their minds. But in New York City, we had stop and frisk on the subways where the police were stopping random black people, largely. I mean, they did it to white people occasionally to like say they weren't racist, but it was always, it was almost always black people that they would stop. They stopped black people and searched them for guns, right? And it was a racist policy and it was awful. And it was gotten rid of. The courts ultimately stepped in and said, you can't do this. It came from Mayor Bloomberg and it came from Ray Kelly, uh, who was the police commissioner. 
And the courts ultimately stepped in and they said, yeah, this is racist. This is racially discriminatory. You can't do this. And they stopped it after protest, though. It was if Cornell West and all kinds of people associated with Riverside Church and others hadn't engaged in a campaign of civil disobedience to stop that policy, it might still be going on. Stop and frisk was a horrendous policy. I'm glad that it was stopped. And I'm glad that people engaged in a campaign of protest to make it stop. Um, it was absolutely outrageous. You cannot do that. You cannot, you cannot do that. And the fact that the NRA and all the gun rights groups didn't say anything about it, that kind of exposes them a bit, doesn't it? All right. What's the dumbest thing you've ever heard a libertarian say? Um, I think one of the, you know, there's, a, there's many dumb things I've heard libertarians say. Here's one of them. There would be no monopolies if it weren't for the government. There would be no monopolies if it weren't for the government. Oh boy. I, I When I hear that, I'm just blown away. There would be no monopolies if it weren't for the government. Do they know anything about how business works? Expand or die. Wealth centralizes in the hand... Why do you think we have antitrust laws? Why do you think the government is constantly stepping in to, it's, it's, it, the government works overtime to prevent monopolies because it ruins the economy and leads to monopolistic stagnation. The capitalists themselves are constantly trying to figure out how to prevent monopolies so that growth can expand. I don't know how anyone who knows anything about economics can say, oh, you know, if it weren't for the government, there would never be any monopolies. Right? Oh, if we just had real capitalism, there would never be any monopolies. Have they ever played the game Monopoly? Have they ever played Monopoly? Right? Eventually, somebody wins. Right? The, the government under capitalism is constantly trying to step in to keep the game going. When all the money and all that ends up in one person's hands, they divide it up. Right? The government, they have laws. You can't own a movie theater. If you own a movie studio, did you know that? If you own a movie studio, you cannot own a movie theater. Why? Because if you own a movie theater and you own a movie studio, you would never show any movies from any other movie studio. Why would you help your competitors? And then pretty soon, all the movies are going to be shown at your movie studio are going to be from the movies that you make. And that leads to a monopoly. There are all kinds of mechanisms and regulations that have been created not to protect workers, but to just keep the economy moving by preventing monopolies. Because when there's a monopoly, it leads to, it leads to stagnation, right? Once there's a monopoly, you don't have economic growth. It's competition that makes the capitalist economy thrive, something these libertarians believe in. They love competition. Well, one of the big problems of capitalism has always been you, the government is constantly stepping in to make the competition keep going, to keep the general law of, of capitalist accumulation going. They say there would be no monopolies if it weren't for the government. That is so dumb. I mean, the government is constantly trying to break apart monopolies that naturally arise. Monopolies emerge in the process of competition, right? So there you go. Um, there you go. Uh, how can you approach a person who says communism is evil, Ukrainian genocide, et cetera? Okay. First thing first, don't argue with them about any of that, right? Don't, don't start playing that game, right? 
You start denying that stuff. You sound like a neo-Nazi. It was actually this million. It wasn't this many. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. Start with, did communism fail economically? Right? That, that's how I, that's, that was how I got into this. Years ago, I was a, a young teenager. I was, I was a young teenager, and I asked that question. Start with that. Right? These people who say communism is evil, it killed millions of people, say, did communism fail everywhere it's ever been tried? And show them the economic successes of communism, because those are undisputable. You can't deny them. That is the opening. If you can see, there's all this anti-communist propaganda that says communism just doesn't work economically. It's just never worked. It's just never had any successes. Never that is so easy to debunk, right? I mean, they might as well argue that, uh, you know, that that water isn't wet or something like that. China has had huge successes that are very demonstrably because of state control of the economy. The Soviet five-year plans, the industrialization. I mean, you can just start rattling off statistics. Compare Nicaragua to Honduras and Guatemala. The libertarian argument that, oh, communism has just never worked anywhere is so easy to debunk. Once you, once you take that apart, everything else, everything else starts to fall apart. After that, if these people are honest, the next thing you'll get after you prove to them it didn't fail economically, which should be this huge thing, right? Think about it. Think about it. What we've all been told is fact, right? It never has it ever worked anywhere is a big lie. And it's a very easily debunked big lie. That's huge. So take that. Next, if they're intellectually honest, the next thing they'll say is, oh, okay, I guess they did. But, and they'll say, but at what cost? Right? And then they'll start giving you gulags and, and all that. And you say to them, uh, what about the international slave trade? And what about all the war? And, and the argument that they committed atrocities could just as well be an argument against capitalism, couldn't it? Hasn't capitalism committed all kinds of atrocities? So, you know, if no one blames all those atrocities on capitalism, then why are you blaming them on, you know? And then that falls apart when you see that, oh, wow, capitalism has committed horrendous atrocities and killed all kinds of people, so... You know, that's not an argument. I mean, it's, that's not an argument against it. That's the way I would start these things, right? Don't go into it trying to, you know, trying to be Grover Fur and, you know, debunk every allegation because you do that. Look, I mean, look, at the end of the day, the Soviet Union was a very authoritarian place. Cuba is a very authoritarian place. You know, these socialist countries are developing socialism under attack, facing huge um, blockades economically, et cetera. You know, I mean, they have done very authoritarian things, trying to pretend that they didn't have, you know, a level of authoritarianism, that they had the same level of free speech as we have. Is not, it's not a good look because they didn't, right? Now, obviously, there are huge extreme distortions and, and over-the-top mischaracterizations of how the society was, Okay. But at the end of the day, no one, nobody, nobody thinks that everyone in the Soviet Union had the exact same level of freedom as we have in the United States. They didn't. Okay. 
So, you know, the the place to start is with the economics. And once the, it never worked anywhere, once that argument comes apart, and then it's like, oh, well, there's atrocities. And then you point out there's atrocities over here. Uh, Suddenly you you start to realize that anti-communism is a house of cards, right? It's premised on a pack of lies. Right, the Soviet Union never had any success. They were just poor and starving everywhere because human nature, that didn't happen. False, I mean, very, very, very easily debunked, very demonstrably false. The whole thing starts to come apart at that point. And that's how I would approach that question. That's how I would approach it. All righty, all right. How much has Lyndon LaRouche inspired my project? Um. I, you know, I've read a, a lot of his writings. Um, I know people that are part of, you know, his organization. I mean, he's obviously died, um, but he's not a Marxist. Um, and there are some fundamental disagreements I would have with with Lyndon LaRouche on, on a number of things. Um, you know, I mean, Lyndon LaRouche was not a communist. I mean, he, he called himself a Trotskyist. He was a Trotskyist in the, in the 60s and 70s, but by the 80s, he was doing his own thing. They have their own view, um, you know, the American system, science of Christian economy. Um, right now, the LaRouche organization is very supportive of China and Russia, which is good. And they are very anti-imperialist. Now, their positions internationally have not always been where I'm at. But right now, they seem to be in a very taking very anti-imperialist positions. Um, and they agree with what is Marxism, which is that there is no limit to growth and that uh, the problem, you know, that the human innovation and creativity must be expanded, that the state has a role to play in that. Okay. So there are some things we agree on. Um, but fundamentally there are some things that we do not disagree on. They deny global warming. I don't, um, you know, um, you know, their worldview is very much, um, you know, they believe that ideas, ideas define reality. They're idealists. And I believe that reality defines ideas. Um, you know, they're, I, I would argue that, that a lot of their beliefs are, you know, you can almost argue the LaRouche viewpoint is it's, it's almost a religious viewpoint. They have some specific ideas about what God is. They have some, some specific theological views, I would argue. Um, you know, they have, they have a very unique interpretation of many events around the world, you know, that I, I don't agree with. I mean, some of their publications, they maintain Karl Marx was an agent of the British empire, um, you know, because he, you know, he worked at the, at the British museum or something. And, you know, they, they, they have a very unique interpretation of many historical events that, that doesn't add up. They argue that, you know, the human history is a struggle between the Platonists and the Aristotelians, the followers of Aristotle and the followers of Plato. They consider themselves to be the Plato, the Platonists, um, and that they, the enemies are the Aristotelians and the Venetians. That's not my worldview. Um, I'm a Marxist. I mean, I view this as a struggle, you know, between different classes, you know, socialism versus capitalism, Western imperialism and the rise of socialism around the world. I, I view things in a historical materialist format. Uh, they believe it is ideas that seem to define reality, um, you know, and they follow the economic teachings of Friedrich List, um, 
Friedrich List, the German economist, um, you know, uh, and that's not my viewpoint. I mean, there are certain, there's certain overlap. There are certain things, you know, that may overlap between us. And I, I will say I've studied a lot of their material and I respect them, honestly, at this point. And I, you know, years ago, it's very funny. I did a stream with, with Daniel Burke from that group. Um, he was a friend of mine. I mean, he's just a friend of mine. And we talked about, we talked about the first time I met him, I shouted at him. I said, oh, Operation Mop-Up. And the thing is, they've been canceled, right? And what immediately made me start to think that they've gotten an unfair rap is when the same thing was done to me, right? The same stuff has been done to me. All kinds of people who've never met me, who know nothing about me, have been warned, this guy's bad. Right, all kinds of people who never met Lyndon, don't know anything about Lyndon Larouche, have decided he's a neo-Nazi. You know that his organization are neo-Nazis. Why? Because they are. You're very, very welcome, Kurt. And they can't tell you why he's a neo-Nazi, but he just is because he is. Well, that's all kinds of people now say that about me. Right? I mean, my God, I'm not. I mean, I'm 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 married to someone who isn't white. I've spent years protesting police brutality and all that. But all these people, it's been announced. The left, you know, has decided that I'm a neo-Nazi. I'm not a neo-Nazi. Well, they've done the same thing to Lyndon Larouche. Right? They announced, well, Lyndon Larouche, he's a neo-Nazi. He's not a neo-Nazi. Most many members of the group are Jewish. Many members of the group are black. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I mean, their hero is Roosevelt, for goodness sakes, the guy who, you know, led an anti-fascist fight. They're constantly accusing, you know, their opponents of having fascistic tones. You can disagree with them on many things, which I do. I mean, about global warming is my, my biggest disagreement with them, I think. Uh, you know, I disagree with their analysis of history and all that. But they're, they're not neo-Nazis. They are just not neo-Nazis. They are many things, but they are not neo-Nazis. Um... But the fact that people were saying that about me, it made me realize how easy it is, how easy it is. Look, and folks, I, I, this, this is a tough pill to swallow, okay? And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a tough pill for everyone to swallow, but I, I'm just going to say this. And, you know, you can roll your eyes and say a tinfoil hat, but okay, if you're going to do anything communist in the United States, you're going to do anything activist, communist, anti-imperialist, we're heavily infiltrated and we're heavily monitored. I'm just going to say that, okay? We are heavily infiltrated and we're heavily monitored. And if you don't believe that, if you want to pretend that's not true, fine. But if you're doing communist stuff in the United States, the FBI is watching us. You know, the FBI has its, the FBI and the CIA and, you know, naval and military intelligence, we are being monitored more than any other section of U.S. society, number one. We're being monitored. Number two, we're infiltrated. And all the groups have informers in them, have people in tech connected to intelligence agencies in them. That's just the reality, okay? The U.S. government goes all over the world making sure that no, no country anywhere in the world has a communist revolution. So do you think that I'm sorry, but if you if you if you really believe that all the communist groups in the United States don't have FBI informers in them and aren't very closely monitored by FBI, CIA, military intelligence, uh, you're delusional. Okay, and you know, I mean, if I mean, you know, I mean, you're. I, I'm sorry. We're all very carefully monitored, and 
that's why the left is part of the reason. It's a big factor, I'm convinced, in why the left has been so ineffective, why they haven't gotten anything done, um, is because the FBI is all over it. I mean, the FBI and the state is 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 in it, right? Um, you know, and that's just a reality, okay? So the fact that the whole left gets memos about people, right? Now you'd think, right? So back, you know, Lyndon LaRouche is Lyndon LaRouche, right? He's around, he's a Trotskyist, he stops being a Trotskyist or whatever. But like every leftist group decides Lyndon LaRouche is, a, is an evil white supremacist neo-Nazi, which he's clearly not. Same time, right? Same kind of shit's been done to me. Same kind of shit's been done to Peter Coffin. Same kind of shit's been done to Chris Halali, an amazing communist activist from Vermont, right? I mean, the guy's an amazing communist activist from Vermont. He ran for ran for Congress in Vermont, and it's like it's the same kind of cancel. You know, the fact that the fact that certain people, certain people, certain people just suddenly get canceled. Right, you, and it's very weird. Sudden, su- sudden people. It's just they're they're just canceled. The memo goes out to everyone. This person bad. This person bad. That memo goes out, and it doesn't add up. Right, and it's the same. I mean, it, I'm I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. That I mean, you know, we don't really know the details of how this stuff is done. But when this was done to me. That made me think, wow, I should stop repeating this about LaRouche. I should stop repeating this about other people because you could do this to anybody. No, I'm not, Jared, I'm not going to defend, you know, those topics in your comment are obviously, I don't agree with the first thing there, the second thing there, or the third thing there. And I I don't endorse them. And that's why I don't, you know, I don't have their worldview. So don't ask me, ask them about that. Right. Because I, I know about those things and I don't agree with those things. Like I said, you know, my agreements with the LaRouche people are on supporting China and Russia, supporting, you know, technology, opposing Malthusianism, believing in economic growth. You know, there are some points of agreement, but there are some pretty clear points of disagreement. Those things you all raised are things that I, those are all historical things at this point, but, you know, I mean, Ask them about it. Don't ask me to speak for them because I'm not them. I don't agree with them. I'm a Marxist. They're not. So there you go. End of the conversation about that. All righty. Uh, Japan refusing to apologize to Korea. You know, um, Japan refusing to apologize to Korea. Um, you know, it's awful. I mean, the, the atrocities that command Japan committed in Korea the comfort women, the genocide, the way they, you know, cracked down on the white robe movement. In 1919, there was a peaceful movement uh, called the white robe movement. Too long. Uh, the white robe movement, it was a protest for the rights of Korean people under Japanese occupation. And they they shot all these peaceful protesters. And then just, just to punish the Korean people, they lit a bunch of schools on fire and killed a bunch of school children. Uh, the Japanese imperialists, their crimes in Korea are horrendous. And the fact that there's not an apology there, you know, the Japanese right wing is vicious. You know, there's some Japanese communists that don't talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki because of the fact that they don't want to play into the Japanese right wing militarist narrative. There is a vicious right wing in Japan. You know, there's a very big communist party in Japan. There's a lot of socialist groups. There's a lot of labor unions in Japan. But there's also 
there's a vicious militaristic right wing uh, in, in Japan that people don't talk about. So there you go. Huey Long. I have a positive view of Huey Long. You know, Huey Long was a populist um, and he built kind of a united front in the state of Louisiana against, um, against the oil companies. And he kind of unified the, the local businesses against Standard Oil and Gulf Refining Company. Um, and he started taxing Standard Oil. And with that, he started, you know, he built bridges all over the state. He gave school textbooks to the kids. He had, he wiped out illiteracy in the state of Louisiana. Um, you know, um, the writer, um, the writer from, uh, I forget what his name is, um, Greg Pallast. Greg Pallast, the writer, he said that Huey Long was basically the Hugo Chavez of Louisiana. Um, and he, you know, he paved the roads of the state. He wiped out illiteracy. He helped poor people in Louisiana a whole lot, including black people. Uh, you know, black voter registration increased, even though it was a Jim Crow, you know, situation in the South. He was seen as a champion of black people. Huey Newton is actually named after Huey Long uh, because, you know, Huey Newton's father was really impressed with the way Huey Long enabled so many black women to become nurses, um, you know, and that Huey Long had, had done a lot for the black community in Louisiana. Huey Long was a populist. He was a Southern populist. They called him the Kingfish. And he emerged in Louisiana politics fighting the Ku Klux Klan, right? There's a lot of Roman Catholics in the state of Louisiana. The Ku Klux Klan hated Roman Catholics. So Huey Long aligned with the Catholics. He himself was Protestant. But he aligned with the Catholics to fight the Klan. And he emerged in Louisiana politics and he was, you know, he was a populist. He was a, a socialist or I, he didn't call himself a socialist. He said he was for share the wealth, right? Um, you know, share the wealth. And he was a populist, a fighter for the common people. Um, and, um, you know, he, he, he emerged and he was a progressive and, you know, he built kind of a mass movement, the Share Our Wealth movement in Louisiana. He went to Congress. He became a U.S. senator. Um, and, um, you know, he he was, you know, he had, he didn't get along with the Communist Party because labor unions were not a thing in Louisiana, okay? It was a rural state. It was a farming state. So, and he had emerged in, in Louisiana politics fighting the oil companies. Well, Rockef you know, the Rockefellers were Roosevelt's biggest supporters, number one. And Roosevelt was aligned, and the Communist Party was aligned with Roosevelt and aligned with labor unions. So Huey Long, you know, Huey Long was fighting the oil companies, and he didn't have any relationship with the labor unions. So as he got onto the national political scene, you know, he was fighting the oil companies. He, he you know, he was fighting Roosevelt. He, he was going to run against Roosevelt in the Democratic primary in 1936. Um, you know, and he was he was fighting Roosevelt because he, you know, Roosevelt was in with the oil companies. He was fighting the oil companies. He pushed Roosevelt to the left significantly. I think Roosevelt became much more left wing because of Huey Long being his competitor. But ultimately, because the Communist Party was supporting Roosevelt and because, you know, Huey Long was Huey Long was very anti-Roosevelt and very anti-Rockefeller, you know, there was, you know, and this is how politics works. Often people will be on different sides and it's not about, you know, principle. It's about who are you aligned with, right? Huey Long was not aligned, you know, but, you know, the other thing is Huey Long died right before things, you know, really mattered. If Huey Long had been alive in 1937, if he had supported the sit-down strikes, there'd be no question that he was a progressive. But if in 1937, Huey Long had opposed the sit-down strike wave, it would have been clear that he was not good. But Huey Long, the more you read about him, 
he comes across in a positive light. He was a populist. He wasn't a socialist, but, you know, he was a populist. He was an anti-imperialist. And in Congress, he was opposed to U.S. military interventions around the world, anti-militaristic for the common people. He was a, he was very, very much a populist and all of that. When he died, um, you know, one of the songs went like this. Oh, they shot Huey Long in Louisiana as he walked down the Capitol steps. Yes, they killed Huey Long in Louisiana, where he took on the capitalists. Everybody knew, and they called him a communist. All the publications in the USA, they had him with hammers and sickles behind him. They called him a commie, a you know, dictator. You know, he's a communist dictator of Louisiana. I mean, the, the, the ruling class, they knew what he was, and they, they called him, you know, sympathetic to black people. They called him an N-word lover, and, you know, Huey Long was a progressive. Huey Long was a good guy. Now, you know, because of the way the alignment was with Roosevelt and such, it's complicated. But Huey Long in Louisiana was a good guy. Huey Long was a progressive. He was an anti-racist as much as he could possibly be at that time, okay? As much as one could possibly be an anti-racist in Louisiana in 1936 and be the governor, he was. Um, and he, the right wing hated him and the, the Ku Klux Klan hated him. And you know, the Confederate supporters hated him and the black community loved him. And, you know, and he fought for the common people. You know, he was a populist and he could have like Roosevelt, if he'd if forces had lined up in the right way, he could have become a socialist. Same with Roosevelt, right? If Roosevelt, if forces had lined up in the right way, Roosevelt could have become a socialist. He didn't. But socialism generally emerges from Bonapartist struggles in the ruling class, right? When things line up a certain way. You know, you know, it leads to a socialist movement. So there you go. All right. On that note, folks, uh, we're going to cut it off here. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution